you know, when I discovered who my father was, I wrote an essay for a local paper in Washington, D.C. called the Washington City Paper. And that, you know, kind of evolved into a larger project, which became the book. I want to read a little bit from the book and then get you to comment and kind of lay okay. out some of the details around uh, fatherless woman syndrome. And then uh, if you can comment on the portion that I read from the book, that would be great too. This okay. is from uh, page 17, the chapter Strange Fruit. You write, oh, yes. uh, the revelation that a man different from the one my sisters and brother called father had impregnated my mother with me branded me anew as the family's black sheep. Like Vietnam veterans whose flashbacks are so real that they are transported once again to the Southeast Asian jungle, sweating from the oppressive heat, jumping at the deafening sound of gunfire and fearful that life may end within seconds, I was mangled by the implicit resurrection of the tale I had heard throughout my childhood. A taunt whispered by my sisters and brother in our bedroom, drawing blood from my soul, crippling me beyond anyone's understanding. Even today, it bruises me and it anchors me in anguish. The story went like this. My mother has just given birth to me. The nurses at Charity Hospital in New Orleans, who had tended to her when my brother and sister were born, are the same ones at her side when I arrive. Seeing me all cleaned up in the nursery, they came to warn her that she cannot take me home. They say her husband, Bill, will know I am not his. There are distinct differences between my features and those of my older sister and brother. They have dark, curly hair with some black, what some, which some black people call good hair. Their Creole skin evidences the mix of white, Spanish, French, and Indian blood that runs through our family. I, on the other hand, flaunt darker skin, nappy hair, and a broad nose. Years later, after hearing far too many times how different I was, I looked into the mirror and saw only what those nurses saw. I was perplexed by the deviation and believed myself an awful mistake. I wanted to beat myself unmercifully for my ugliness. I tried lightening my skin with bleaching creams even before that. My mother used a hot comb in my hair, hoping to straighten out the kinks, only to have them return with the slightest moisture. There wasn't any help for my nose. As a young girl, my mother told me not to smash it, which is exactly what I did when it itched. There were times, however, when I went around squeezing and pinching my nose as if I were a victim of a malicious excuse me, malodorous wind. Sometimes I fantasized about rhinoplasty. Frequently and privately, I searched the faces of relatives looking for commonality, a mole, a wrinkle, an eyebrow that said, you belong. I found only loose threads, nothing whole and complete that I could embrace with security, nothing to which I could cling as Linus does to his blanket. Whatever happened to daddy's little girl? Uh, your thoughts? Wow. And you know, when I hear you read it, it's incredible that I actually survived that psychologically. Um, but that is actually the truth. And, and interestingly, my 
mother and Bill were divorced, and so when Bill would come to visit my brother and sister, he never wanted to be with me, and that exacerbated my sense of, you know, loneliness and not belonging, and it wasn't until I was 30, in my 30s, that I met my actual, my biological father, and it all came together, but the part you didn't, you you didn't read was how I actually learned that I was actually the product of an affair that my mother had. And um, she just called me up one day and said, do you want to meet your father? And I was thinking she was talking about Bill. And I said, well, Bill never liked me, and why would I want to see Bill, and are you out of your mind? And, uh, no, she said, no, 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 I mean your real father. And I was flabbergasted. Not only had my, was there another man who was my real father, she said, but this man had been trying to reconnect with me for decades. And she had deliberately kept him out of my life. In fact, at one point, he lived in Baltimore, and I lived in Washington, D.C., just a few minutes, really, away from each other. I met him two years before he actually died. And when I met him, it was as if I were looking at myself in the mirror. I mean, we look so much alike. And it brought a certain comfort to me that there was someone uh, to whom I, or someone who had loved me all these years, just the way I was, and had been desperately trying to reconnect with me, but also someone whose features I could reflect on and see that I was not this ugly duckling, but rather I was someone else's child. Context of white supremacy. Gusty Renegade in for another broadcast, hopefully to share constructive information on the system of white supremacy today's date thursday march 24 2022 so i have been told uh 13 years we have been on the air stand by your work that's generally what you do you don't brag you just stand by your work 2013 Janetta Rose Barris was a guest on the program. We discussed her book, Whatever Happened to Daddy's Little Girl, The Impact of Fatherlessness on Black Women. Really important book. Very important program was not in the archives. Racists added again, but I put it back in the archives this week so you can go back and hear uh, the full broadcast when she visited with us almost 10 years ago. But last week when we started S.E. May Washington Williams, Dear Senator, her memoir, I said repeatedly, it reminded me of this book so many times. And I mean, Janetta Rose Barris, she's not dealing with uh, her mom being raped by a white man when she was 15. But still, she didn't even have a white father. She had a black father. But still, those elements of growing up and thinking that this person is my dad and he's not 
And then this person is kind of distant to me, even though I'm thinking it's my dad, he and my mom separate and they don't want to kick it or come back or check on me. S.E. May Washington Williams was talking about that exactly. John Henry Washington, he leaves. He's like, dang, he didn't come back to check on me. And I'm thinking he's my dad. What's going on? And then it's not until you're 13, way down the road. You're like, nope, I have been bamboozled. And she talks about the impact that that has on you for a life. Now, I don't even know. Now, you add in that it is a white man, a white supremacist who raped my mother when she was 15 and then is renowned all over the world for talking about no count black people. How does that impact your sense of fatherlessness? He won't even acknowledge. I can't even get into all the tackiness of it. Uh, Dear Senator S.E. May Washington Williams memoir. We didn't even get that far last week. We only read uh, the first chapter and we got like halfway through the second chapter. I believe we stopped at the point where S.E. May says that her mother, her now she knows it's Carrie Butler. So her mother and her sister say, we got to go to South Carolina and we're going to take you with us. This is our first time going back to South Carolina is where we're picking up at this week. The last thing that I will get in well, two things. One, thankfully, hoorah, play, praise white Jesus and anyone else that we can thank. One of our listeners volunteered and did the narration. I'm so thankful that I don't have to read. I hate narrating. It is really hard work, but she did a tremendous job and and did it promptly. So enormous thanks to our uh, black female listener in South Florida uh, for doing the narration. That is one, two, since I didn't have to invest all of my time putting my raspy old black male voice on here. Uh, I was able to go back to the University of Washington, not only was I able to do some research on the lynching of Zachariah Walker, they have whole books uh, just on that lynching, which we heard about last week, 1911, uh, but also I was able to go back and just dig around about this case and, and what have you. I'll try to share some of the information that I found uh, during my research as we proceed with the book study, but the one thing that stood out, there are so many news reports and I mean like New York Times front page that talked about this when this was a big issue like this became a big to do back in I believe like 2003 uh, around the time of Strom Thurmond's passing at the age of 100 Uh, but there are articles in the New York Times and many other mainstream outlets that point out Strom Thurmond got Carrie Butler pregnant pregnant when she was 15. They don't say rape, but I mean, what else do you call that? And even some of the reports, even though they don't call it rape, they have individuals saying, hey, we arrest people for this sort of behavior. Now, having sex with somebody that's 15, this is nothing to brag about. This is tacky and disgraceful all the way through. And Strom Thurmond could have been arrested even at that time period for that for that behavior. Anywho, I will share what did old Gus find at the library about all of this as we move on through the text. Anywho, we're picking up in like midpoint of chapter two. 
Dear Senator Essie May Washington Williams, Context of White Supremacy, audio segment number one. The four of us, Carrie, Mary, Willie, and I, all assembled in Chester to go to the Pennsylvania station in Philadelphia, where we would take the train down south. The station was like a great ancient temple with soaring columns and brilliant shafts of sunlight, streaming through the windows hundreds of feet above the bustling station floor. We were all dressed up, for in those days traveling was a special experience that demanded respect. The public address speaker called out the names of wonderful exotic places I had never been to. New York, Boston, Cleveland, Chicago, Richmond, Savannah, Miami, Trenton, Rahway, and Albany. Crisply dressed black redcaps carried the fine leather bags of glamorous white people, women in silks, men in striped suits. It was all so grand. I felt I was at the gates of heaven. The first part of our trip was very elegant, as we sat in a parlor car with those dapper white people and the equally dapper and crisp black porters and conductors who served us all and watched the world go by, the big stone mansions of Philadelphia, the Chesapeake Bay at Baltimore, the huge white government buildings of Washington, D.C. We caught a quick fleeting glance of the white marble temple that Carrie, our history expert, told us was the Lincoln Memorial. Our friend who delivered us from evil, she said, quoting the scriptures, as she often did. What I knew about Lincoln from school was that he freed the slaves, won the Civil War, and been shot for doing so. He had to have been a wonderful man, I thought, considering the tomb they put up for him. I soon came to wonder about Lincoln's legacy when we changed trains at Union Station. After the fancy parlor car we had started in, our new accommodations, to which we were herded, felt more like a cattle car. There were only blacks in these tattered seats. Half the windows wouldn't open, and the fans didn't work. It smelled awful. I was hungry and wanted a snack, but Carrie held me back. This is a southern train, she said, meaning that blacks were segregated in the worst cars and weren't allowed in the dining car. Eventually, a black porter came through, with a cart selling soft drinks and sandwiches, which we ate in our hot seats. Life wasn't fair, I thought, but I was far too excited to complain. I was on a trip, the first big trip of my life, so I was one lucky girl just to have any seat on this magical train. The whole journey reminded me of the song Chattanooga Choo Choo, which was a big hit that year for Glenn Miller. I knew the words from the radio, Nothing could be finer when you're in a diner than to have your ham and eggs in Carolina. This was almost like that, except we couldn't go into the diner. Well, nothing was perfect. The train's first stop was Richmond, which Carrie pointed out had been the capital of the Confederacy, and near Appomattox, where Robert E. Lee surrendered to Ulysses S. Grant. I liked the ring and rhythm of those names. They sounded like warriors, though I didn't have any idea, aside from the notion of blue versus gray, 
exactly what they were fighting about. It made me look forward to the American history class we had the next school year. From the train, Richmond didn't look that different from Philadelphia. Lots of grand buildings with columns. Philadelphia was the cradle of liberty. Richmond, I guess, was the cradle of slavery. Apropos of slavery, what I did notice was a lot of very sad-looking black men just lolling about on benches at the train station. What are they doing? I asked. Just what you see. Nothing, Mary answered, waiting to come north where they can get a job. As the train passed through the endless Virginia tobacco fields, I saw more and more scenes of these unemployed black men sitting aimlessly at all the whistle-stop stations with absolutely nothing to do. We didn't have scenes like that in Coatesville. All the men were at the mills working, busy doing something. The South seemed lazy and sleepy, I commented. That's the nice part, Mary said. Virginia gave way to the rolling hills of North Carolina and still more tobacco fields. What's the difference between North Carolina and South Carolina, I asked. Carrie had a quick answer. They call North Carolina the Valley of Humility. Between two mountains of conceit, the mountains are South Carolina and Virginia. Speak English, girl, Mary told her sister. Where did you get that stuff? I was confused, too. Carrie explained. South Carolina and Virginia are both a lot fancier than North Carolina. At least they were until the war. They were full of big plantations and rich people. Because of all these hills we're looking at, North Carolina was divided up into a lot more farms. It was a state of small farmers, not big planters. So it didn't put on any ears like the other two. And now North Carolina is a lot better off than South Carolina because those small farmers didn't have that much to lose and knew how to take care of themselves after the war. But the big planters of South Carolina had no idea what to do without us. Us? I asked. The slaves. I never thought about myself as a slave or a descendant of slaves, but as I said, this trip would open my eyes. How do you know so much? I asked Carrie. I had a wonderful teacher, she said. In high school? Here and there was all she would say. That cryptic answer would soon take on a whole new meaning. The train reached Columbia very early in the morning after an all-night ride. We had been riding in that coach for over 15 hours, and I had been too excited to sleep. The song went, Nothing could be finer than to be in Carolina in the morning. And I couldn't have agreed more. It was great to get off that train and smell the sweet magnolias, honeysuckle, and orange blossoms in the air. We took a cab to the bus station to transfer to Edgefield. Carrie, ever the historian, told us how General Sherman burned Columbia down on his bloody march from Atlanta to the sea. Why would he burn a whole city down, I asked. To teach the rich folks a lesson, Carrie answered. Columbia, the state capital, didn't look at all like it had been burned, or if it had, it was perfectly rebuilt. There were broad boulevards with huge plantation-style houses, with double-deck front porches and endless gardens. 
we passed the majestic state capitol, which was every bit as impressive as what I had glimpsed in Washington, D.C. Carrie pointed out a gray, stars-and-bars flag in front of the state house, flying next to Old Glory. That's the Confederate flag, she noted. Why do they let them fly it? Didn't they lose? I asked. Not in their minds, Carrie said with a rueful laugh. They sure love that war down here. At the bus station, full of more sleeping black men, I was struck by the signs for two separate waiting rooms, white and colored. Obviously, the colored room was shabby and crowded, the white room plush and empty. Thirsty, I was disappointed to find that the colored water fountain barely worked and that the water wasn't refrigerated. Nobody was at the white fountain in that empty room, but Mary's look told me I dared not push my luck. We caught a rickety bus to Edgefield. I had plopped down with exhaustion in the first seat I could find, but Mary yanked me out of it as if I were wired with a bomb that could explode. I guess in a sense it was. You can't sit there, she snapped at me. Why not? It's empty, I replied. Mary gave me a look of warning. Don't be asking stupid questions, she ordered me. I followed her to the rear. On the hour ride to Edgefield, through rich cotton fields and peach orchids, Carrie explained to me about the segregation laws in the South. They think we're still slaves, she said. They can't seem to get over that we're not. That was 80 years ago. They lost. Stop saying they lost. They may have lost up where we live now, but down here they think things are the same. They think they won. And look around, child. Maybe they did. They must be weird people, I marveled, staring out the bus window at the decrepit cabins in the cotton fields where our people lived. They made the worst shacks, and the spruces look like the White House by comparison. It's so poor down here, Carrie said. That's why we all left. The bus sputtered in Edgefield, into Edgefield. What a dump, was my first impression. It was a tiny village of two-story stores centering around a square dominated by a tall obelisk. As there was no bus station, we were let out at a square. More silent and sad black men were standing around in the shade. None, however, were sitting on the benches in the square. A Confederate flag was flying, but not an American one. I looked more closely at the obelisk. It was the Monument to the Confederate Dead, erected by the woman of Edgefield County. Behind it stood a big building, the Edgefield County Courthouse, that did have a small American flag next to a larger Confederate flag. Across the way was the Edgefield Baptist Association. Aside from a small hotel, seemingly misnamed the Plantation House, flying still another Confederate flag, the rest of the square was devoted to business. The store names didn't advertise their content, such as Ace Hardware or Magnolia Tool and Die, but rather they announced the name of the proprietor. Strangely, most of the nearby stores seemed to have foreign-sounding names over their doorways. Jacob Rubenstein, Billy Rubenstein, Jonah Goldberg, Abram Deitch, Jacob Alstock, 
Israel Makashi. Jews, Carrie said. They have all the sores. I thought we had a lot of Jewish Martins, merchants in Coatesville, but I never expected there to be so many in this distant outpost of civilization. Here? I sounded surprised. There's a lot of money in this little town, Carrie said. Isn't that so tiny? But not for us. I was amazed that this little town had sent so many people up to Pennsylvania. Who could be left? Why would anyone stay? The only redeeming aspect of the place were the trees and flowers all in bloom. The little hamlet smelled like the perfume counters of John Wanamaker. Otherwise, this was nowhere USA, or nowhere United States of the Confederacy, as was more the case. There were no taxis. There were no people, so how could there be? Carrying our suitcases, we walked down a long road called Buncombe Street toward where our relatives live. We passed a grand brick Baptist church, which seemed out of place for this hamlet, as well as a lovely stone Catholic church. Then the mansions began, and I suddenly became impressed. Carrie was right. There was a lot of money here and nowhere. They all looked like Tara in Gone with the Wind, great plantation houses on tall, sloping hills. Most of the houses were gleaming white, as if they had just been painted. Finally, I saw men at work, black men, gardening, planting, tending these imposing houses. Nine governors of this state came from this tiny town, Carrie said proudly as if she could identify and draw sustenance from the statistics. Leaders are born here. So they say, Mary added. Hush your mouth, Tiny. You were born here. Well, I left, and I don't miss it. I think it's nice to be home. Well, you would. We walked on through the spring beauty of the place. One house was more dramatic than the rest each a variation on the theme of a Greek temple. Vast columns, vast porches, vast lawns. Is everyone here a millionaire? I blurted out. Nine governors, Carrie repeated her point. And 90,000 slaves, Mary made her own. That's the house of the man who started the Civil War, Carrie noted, pointing out another white temple on a high hill in the distance. Brooks's, Mary added. Bunch of hotheads. Did he kill Abraham Lincoln? Carrie broke out laughing. What do they teach you in Coatesville, child? Lincoln was killed after the war was over. Next year we have, we have a course. I hope so. Then Carrie gave me one of her little history lessons. Preston Brooks was this rich cotton planter and war hero who was Edgefield's man in Congress, big slave owner. He hated the Yankees, felt they were jealous of all he and his people had done down here. The one he despised the most was the big Yankee senator from Massachusetts, Charles Sumner, the chief anti-slavery man. Sumner knew it was wrong and wasn't afraid to say it. So one day Brooks went into the Senate and took his walking cane and beat Sumner near to death right on the floor of the Capitol, claimed he insulted South Carolina so he nearly killed him, and he got away with it, made him a hero down here. He was the king of this town. But how did it start the war? 
because it drew the line. It showed the Southerners were ready to fight over this thing, fight and kill, and stand up for their honor, their honor. Mary snared our backs. Preston Brooks drew that line and crossed it. After that, the North hated the South, and the South hated the North, and it was just a matter of time till it all blew up. I was so impressed with how much my mother knew. Maybe the high school she went to down here was better than mine. Looking at the gracious mansions and all the black gardeners, I could see how the Northerners might be jealous and offended at the same time. I myself was offended when we turned off Buncombe Street into a smaller road named Brook Street after the senatorial assailant himself. And Buncombe Street was the facade of a Hollywood stage set, Old Buncombe. As this area was known, was the hard reality behind the glamorous facade. Old Buncombe, which quickly descended from the high ground of the Greek temples into a steep gully, was a desperate shanty town of the kinds of unpainted wooden shacks and outhouses like the ones I had noticed with pity from the train. How could people live in such squalor, I wondered. I was about to learn firsthand because the people who lived in these shacks were my people. This is it, my mother said. It was a letdown, to say the least, a crumbling, unpainted wooden shack. A large woman wearing a headscarf like the one Mary wore around the house stepped off the porch to greet us. Well, I'll be, the woman said, giving me a big hug. Come here, baby. It's been a long time. Come to your Aunt Bertha. She hugged me, then Willie. Mary introduced us to this woman who was the sister of my two mothers, but who looked nothing like them. She was a country lady. They were city girls. The thought crossed my mind that maybe they might have gained weight and looked like her if they had remained down here. Bertha, a Paul Bunyan of a woman, seemed to pick up all our bags at once and bring them into the house. At first glance, it seemed even more depressing inside than out. A dank, cave-like single room, subdivided with hanging sheets, to create some cubicles where we might have some privacy. There was no electricity, no running water, no phone, nothing. I thought how lucky I was back in the luxury of my home in Coatesville. As my eyes adjusted to the dark, however, I did see some amazing tattered antiques, big brass beds, a love seat, and some cracked gilt mirrors. They looked like ancient hand-me-downs from the mansions on the hill. Bertha filled this shack with a spirit that took my mind off the surroundings. Like her sister, she was a great cook, and she began feeding us cakes she had baked for us, which distracted me from the surroundings. That night, we all huddled around an old wood-burning stove for warmth. As it got cold in that damp, wooded area behind the rich folks' homes, it was like camping out. As I had never camped out overnight before, I decided to be positive about the whole experience and looked at it not as a hardship, but as an adventure. I did feel sorry for Bertha, though, and wished there were some way to get her to move up north with us. As bleak as our surroundings were, 
The food was wonderful. We ate endlessly from that big stove. Fried chicken, pickled collard greens, steaming fluffy biscuits with melting butter. My first taste of hush puppies, which were fried balls of cornmeal designed to throw to the hounds to keep them quiet. They sure shut me up. I also tried Brunswick stew, which was made with squirrel meat. Since I had eaten groundhog in Coatesville, I wasn't too put off by the squirrel, but tried to pretend it was chicken. It was actually delicious and took our minds off the lack of other creature comforts. The next day, we got all dressed up to go to my aunt's funeral, the very first funeral I'd ever attended, in a Baptist church further down the road. The building wasn't much more than a barn, but the spirit was like a glorious cathedral. Hundreds of people were there, all in their finest clothes, which, like their homes, were rather threadbare. Yet, they had dignity. And what singers they all were! The hymns which I loved to sing were divine, but the part I couldn't handle was the open casket. I had never seen a dead person before and was afraid to get too close. Mary said I had to go pay my respects, despite not knowing my late aunt, so I walked up there and tried not to look. I still had nightmares about it for weeks afterward. After the funeral, all we did was eat, going to one house after another, an old bunkum, to meet with friends and relatives. All the neighbors would bring covered dishes as a show of respect, and we showed our respect by eating every bit of them. The day after the funeral, Carrie woke me up from a bad dream I was having about my deceased aunt's casket. You've got to get up and get dressed, she told me in a whisper, as to not disturb the others who were sleeping, and look specially nice. I noticed through my blurry eyes how pretty my mother looked. She was all dressed up in a lovely frock with pearls and earrings. I assumed we were going back to church for more services, but what my mother had on didn't strike me as mourning attire. She picked my nicest dress out of my suitcase, combed out my hair, and told me to put on makeup. Too much lipstick, she scolded me, wiping some off. At 16, I wasn't very good in this department. I redid my lips, wanting desperately to please her. She was so beautiful. I felt I could never compare with her, no matter how hard I tried. I couldn't keep my eyes off of her. She was still a mystery woman to me. I thought I was already, but my mother decided she didn't like the dress after all. Too sad, she said. But aren't funerals supposed to be sad? This isn't a funeral, darling, she said, with that enigmatic laugh of hers. I'm taking you to meet your father. My heart started racing. In the three years we had known each other, the identity of my real father had never been discussed. Now was the moment of truth, and I was scared to death. We walked up the steep hills of Old Buncombe to the paradise of Buncombe Street. The shacks were all quiet. The black world was sleeping. I kept wondering when my mother would turn so that I could meet my fate. 
At first, I thought it might be one of the big white column mansions where this mystery man might be working as a butler to some rich family. But we kept walking down that dusty, oak-shaded road, straight into downtown. Maybe he was a barber or a porter in the Plantation House Hotel, I thought, but we passed those establishments as well. I didn't dare ask my mother. I knew she wanted to surprise me, and she was doing a good job. The men in the street seemed to notice and admire my mother, with her pretty clothes and that graceful way she moved. All of those men were black, working in yards, painting buildings, smoking cigarettes outside of the general stores. I suppose the South Carolina heat was too much for the white folks, whom I rarely saw outside. In any event, none of these men turned out to be my father. Finally, we arrived at a one-story white building that housed a law office. Thurman and Thurman, attorneys at law, the sign said. That was it. My new daddy was a driver for a big-shot lawyer. We went up the steps and knocked on the door. A black servant in a white coat opened the door. I wanted to throw my arms around him, but he just looked at me blankly. Then he showed us into a grand office, stocked floor to ceiling with law books and diplomas, where my mother and I were left to stand alone in silence. My heart was pounding so hard I feared it might be audible. A few moments passed and then a fair, handsome man entered the room. A little nervously, I thought, as he tipped over a standing ashtray. He wore a light blue suit and tie and looked every inch the lord of a plantation. He gazed at my mother a long time, then stared at me even longer. Finally, his stone face broke into a smile. You have a lovely young daughter, he said in a deep commanding voice. I was speechless. Esime, my mother said with a big smile of her own, meet your father. I couldn't get out one word. This was even crazier than when I learned Carrie was my mother. Now I saw that my real father was a handsome, charming, and rich white lawyer. My first thought was whether Mary knew this, and if so, why she didn't tell me. My second thought was that I didn't know this man's name, my father's name. Thurman and Thurman, I remembered the sign. Hello, Mr. Thurman, I stuttered. What do you think of our beautiful city? He asked me. It's different from my home. This is your home, SMA. You must think of yourself as South Carolinian. This is a wonderful city, a wonderful state. Nine governors was all I could say. Maybe ten, Carrie added cryptically, winking at the man who smiled sweetly back at her. The Palmetto State. Do you know what a Palmetto is, as you may? Mr. Thurman asked me. No, sir. It's a small palm tree, what they call a cabbage palm, native to our state. Look here. He put his arm on my back, which gave me an electric shock, 
and led me over to a wall with portraits of white men in black judicial robes, embossed certificates, and a framed souvenir of what looked to be two sides of a large coin, which is what he pointed out to me. This is our state seal. See the palmetto growing out of that fallen oak? That represents our great victory from a fort built of palmetto logs over the British fleet built of oak. That Latin phrase there, que separavit, do you know what that means? No, sir. Take a guess, Essie I looked helplessly at my mother, who couldn't suppress her laugh. Your father used to be a school teacher, she explained. Mr. Thurman, which was the only name I had for him then, put his hand on my shoulder. It means who can separate us. I took the comment personally and was deeply flattered by it. And see the other side? See this beautiful lady? He pointed out the other side of the seal, of somewhat risque image of a voluptuous woman in a diaphanous toga, holding up a laurel twig. That, that is hope. And that Latin phrase is our state motto, Dum Spiro Spiro. When I breathe, I hope. Spiro, like inspiration, a deep breath, see? You must learn Latin, Esime. It'll help you with a lot of things. Instantly, I saw where my mother got all her inspiration and who her wonderful teacher had been. I also realized that this visit wasn't some spontaneous drop-in, but had been planned. Yesterday after the funeral, my mother took off for a few hours between house parties to visit some old friends, she had said. Now I saw who the old friend was. When he pulled out two chairs to offer seats to my mother and me, his hand brushed over hers, and he held it there just a moment longer. Her eyes looked up and met his. They were in love, clearly in love. In that split second, I could tell what was going on, and it was as strange to me as seeing aliens from another galaxy. I'm terribly sorry about your aunt, Mr. Thurman said to me. Condolences that were wasted, as I didn't know her. He had clearly already shared his sympathies with my mother. She worked for our family. Wonderful lady. Fine seamstress. She made me shirts that will never wear out. It's a shame to lose someone so young. He then segued into a concern for me. He turned to Carrie and said, I hope you're feeding her right. Diet is the key to longevity. Carrie avoided his gaze, perhaps embarrassed by all the Brunswick stew. So Mr. Thurman turned to me and looked me up and down like a prize cow. I would say, I would stay just as you are, not another pound more. Be careful of that fried food, no matter how good it tastes. It can kill you. And drink plenty of water, at least three big glasses a day, one before every meal. That way you won't eat as much. And walk everywhere you can. He used to be a coach too, Carrie interjected, and that made Mr. Thurman laugh heartily. We stayed together for about an hour. 
Mr. Thurman loved to give little lectures about health and fitness, about local history, about the state of the nation. He was very positive about President Roosevelt, but concerned that the only way to deal with Hitler was to go to the war, was to go to war to defeat him. He was glad Roosevelt had initiated a peacetime draft, but he bragged, We don't need a draft in Edgefield. This is a town where the boys love to fight. This launched him into an address on the endless list of the heroes of Edgefield, William Travis and James Bonham, who fought at the Alamo, General Matthew C. Butler, a Civil War legend, Francis Pickens, ambassador to Russia and courageous Civil War governor, Pickens' Russian-born daughter Olga Neva, who led her own army that drove the carpetbag Yankees, as Mr. Thurman called them, out of South Carolina in the dark days after the Civil War. We call her the Joan of Arc of South Carolina. Do you know who that is? He asked me, and again I was embarrassed to say no. That's what schools are for, Carrie spoke up for me. You study hard, Mr. Thurman admonished me. Among the other Edgefield warriors he mentioned was a revolutionary soldier named Outs. My ears pricked up. I have a good friend in Coatesville named May Outs, I volunteered. Then her family must be from Edgefield with that name, Mr. Thurman said. I wanted to say, but she's black, but I was afraid to say too much. I figured out that May's family must have been slaves that took their master's name. Then I thought back to the General Butler he just mentioned. Butler was my mother's maiden name. Her family must have been that hero's family's slaves. She was from slave blood, and here she was with master blood, and here I was all mixed up in every way. I had never thought before about where we all came from, but that was just one of the revelations of this journey home. Eventually, it was time to go. Mr. Thurman would have kept talking, but Carrie said, I know you've got important work to do. Mr. Thurman stood up and bowed cavalierly to both of us. Then he must have decided that wasn't fatherly enough. So he came out from behind his massive oak desk and shook my hand, then my mother's. Not a kiss, but the strongest bone-crushing handshake I had ever experienced. He took a last long look at me. She has my sister Gertrude's cheekbones, he marveled. Isn't she a lovely girl? You have a lovely daughter. It was a kind thought, but inside it hurt me. I would have liked to have heard him say, We have a lovely daughter. As it was, it sounded as if I might never see this man, my mystery father, ever again. He never called my mother by her first name. He didn't verbally acknowledge that I was his child. He didn't ask when I was leaving and didn't invite me to come back. It was like an audience with an important man, a job interview, but not a reunion with a father. When he closed the door to his office, and we were standing out on the street near the main square with all the sleeping black men, it was as if it had been a dream, a crazy dream. I looked hard at the sign, Thurman and Thurman Attorneys at Law. 
I now notice the names on the bottom, J. William Thurman and J. Strom Thurman. Which J is he? asked Carrie. Strom. Is it true? It is, she assured me as we walked away from the office. Who is he? I wanted to know. A lawyer, a judge, a very powerful judge, she answered. And who is J. Williams, his father? Where is he? He passed a long time ago. But his name is on... You don't take a name down like his. Carrie gave me her own genealogy lesson on a, my new family. Out of nowhere, I had become Southern uh, aristocracy, aristocracy. The Thurmans were perhaps the preeminent legal dynasty in South Carolina. Judge Thurman's grandfather, George Washington Thurman, was a Civil War hero who had fought beside the great General Robert E. Lee. After the Southern surrender at Appomattox, he supposedly walked all the way home across Virginia and North Carolina, just as in the novel Coal Mountain, but a much farther journey and a real one. Judge Thurman's father, J. William Will, had served as a United States attorney for South Carolina, as well as a justice on the South Carolina Supreme Court. He might have gone on to become Edgefield Governor Number 10, but for a blot on his record, he had shot a man in cold blood in front of the law office I had just visited. He claimed it was a question of honor, and honor being a high stake in this family, as well as the fact that Thurman was the law in Edgefield, he was acquitted of the murder charge. My mind said this family rather than our family at this point, the paternal ground I had just stepped on was too shaky at this early stage to be claiming propriety stakes. Instead of becoming governor, Will Thurman became the brains behind the throne, the crown being worn by still another violent Edgefield man named Pitchfork Ben Tillman. A one-eyed, Latin spouting, pro-lynching, intellectual rabble-rouser who got his sobriquet by threatening to stab then-president Grover Cleveland, whom he ridiculed as an old bag of beef with a pitchfork, unless he treated the South with more respect. Tillman despised blacks only slightly less than he despised Yankees, and, in fact, lumped both groups together as culpable for all his state's endless economic problems at the turn of the century. Tillman was one of the state's great folk heroes, and Will Thurman was his chief advisor. It was Ben Tillman who taught little Strom how to shake hands like that, Carrie told me. It nearly killed me, I said. It's supposed to show strength of character, she replied. Weak handshake, weak man. Strong men who lynched weak black men, I thought. How could the son of this architect of white supremacy fall in love with my mother, a black woman? Is it safe, was all I could muster in the way of a query. Carrie shrugged rather enigmatically. 
Love is love. It's colorblind. Besides, she added, all that hate talk is just politics. Then why aren't you two married? I wanted to ask, but I held my tongue. Instead, I asked how she and my father had met. She explained to me how she, as well as her recently deceased sister, had been working at the Thurman home on Columbia Road, one that she promised to show me before we left Edgefield. Strom had graduated from Clemson University and was living at home while teaching classes and coaching football at the Edgefield High School. It was 1925. He was 23. She was 15. She and her sister made beds, cleaned, and did basic housekeeping. He was known for having an eye for the ladies, and he was handsome, as you can see. He was always running in the road, half-naked, at the crack of dawn, because that was part of his health routine. I couldn't help but notice. And he noticed you? Only after his brother did, Mr. Will. That's what I called him, the big brother, was going to medical school, and he would come home and flirt with me like crazy. I think he saw too many cadavers. And Mr. Strom would see this, and I think he got jealous. And the father? What did he say? Big Mr. Will. He was the nicest man you ever met. Always took an interest in me. Always please and thank you. Sometimes he'd pick flowers and give them to me. Bought clothes for our whole family. Sweet as sugar. So the other stuff was just politics. He was no Simon Legree, she said, referring to the evil slave driver in Uncle, Tom, Uncle Tom's cabin. Mrs. Thurman, on the other hand, she described as polite but cool and distant. We didn't have that much to do with her. She was strict, mm -hmm. very religious, very involved with the Baptist church. The church was just a block away from the Thurman law office. Carrie told me about the rest of the family and how nice they all were to her. In addition to big brother William, there was another brother, Alan George, who also became a doctor. He flirted with me too. Those boys sure liked women. They liked them so much, they both became gynecologists. I found that a little weird, but not Carrie. She thought it showed how smart and motivated the whole family was. The sisters, an older one named Gertrude, whom my father said I resembled, and, and the twins, Mary and Martha, were all school teachers. Everybody was educated. Everybody did something special with themselves. You don't see... You don't often see that in one family, where every child makes you proud like that. Strom Thurman, Carrie said, got to know her by helping out in the kitchen and in the vegetable garden behind the big house. He knew everything about fruits and vegetables. He taught agriculture in the high school and wrote articles in the paper. We'd go out to the orchids and pick peaches. And he'd know exactly when they were ripe and which ones would be the sweetest. Carrie said, impressed with the domestic skills of such a manly-seeming man. One thing led to another. But where? How? The mother? It was a big house. These were busy people who were always out doing something. Love finds a way, darling. My mother was both proud and embarrassed at the same time. 
we began walking back to old Buncombe, to our reality. Having had a taste of fantasy, I was, wasn't sure I liked going back. It was Cinderella's gilded coach turning into a pumpkin. I thought he'd be a black gentleman, I said to my mother. You never told me he was a Caucasian. I finally had my explanation of why I had the lightest skin in my family. He really liked you, Carrie said to me. Liked? My disappointment in her choice of words was obvious. Loved. Does he love you? I was bold enough to ask her. I hope so. I think so. Do you love him? Yes. Does he have a wife? No, he cares about me, she asserted. What can we do? I asked her plaintively. Plaintively. Nothing, Carrie's high spirits vanished in an instant. This is South Carolina. My mind started racing about possibilities. I had never known of a mixed-race couple in Coatesville, other than a neighbor in the Spruces where, whose father had moved to Reading and married a white woman. That was cause for enormous gossip among our neighbors. Imagine what they would say about me. I did see several white men with black women in Philadelphia and remember feeling a little shocked just by that sight. Race mixing simply wasn't done. Black people had enough problems of their own. Falling in love with white people seemed to just be asking for trouble, enormous trouble. And now here I was, right in the thick of it. Back at the cabin, everybody was excited to hear what had gone on. They all knew that I was going to meet my father, all except me, and they had kept the secret. We wanted to surprise you, Mary said. To me, it wasn't a pleasant surprise. What do you do when you meet your real father, but may never get to see him again? I tried to play along, but I was still in shock. That night we went to church. I prayed that my mother and father could somehow be united. My mother was praying too, even though the Baptist services were far more restrained than at her Pentecostal church back in Pennsylvania. She was putting all her heart in her prayers and in the hymns. She was forever talking about being forgiven for her sins. Now I knew what her sins were, and I was the direct result of them. I was also praying. I was also paying for them in the worst way, and I'm sure she was too. Maybe that explained why she had become so religious, much more so than her sister Mary, my mother. Carrie and I both needed salvation, but in the society we lived in, what I was praying for would take a miracle. The next morning, as we were packing to go back north, a black Ford arrived at our cabin. There was a black driver in a white coat, the same servant outfit that the butler at the Thurman Law Office had been wearing. The driver got out and opened the door to the back seat. Out stepped a slender, well-dressed woman in a pink hat and a pink frock. She looked like she had taken a wrong turn into the slums on her way to a garden party at one of the mansions. I stood at the window watching as my aunt went out to greet her. It's Mr. Thurman's sister, my aunt said excitedly. She's got a package for Carrie. My mother quickly combed her hair and fixed her dress and went out to meet her. They talked just a few moments. My mother then came back inside. 
The package turned out to be a long envelope. She opened it, and inside was cash, a lot of cash in $10 bills. There were $200 in all, which was serious money in 1941. I had never seen so much money. This is from your father, she told me, to pay for our trip, the woman said. The woman, she said, was Mary, one of the twins. I used to work for her, Carrie said. All my relatives came in to ooh and ah over the money. If it was a lot for someone from Pennsylvania, it must have seemed like a million dollars to the residents of that desperate shantytown. Once I got over the fact that the gift had been made, I felt awful. Didn't Miss Thurman want to meet her niece? She had to know who I was. Didn't my father want to see me again? He could have come, just as she did. Were they trying to buy my mother off so she wouldn't shame them in some way? Was there any love here, or was this some kind of hush money? I didn't ask. We sat in the back of the bumpy bus back to Columbia, then boarded another hot and segregated railway coach for the long trip back north. I stared at the cotton fields and the poor, sleepy black men. I'm the daughter of a powerful white judge, I thought to myself. Why am I sitting here? Why am I? Why is my family? Why is anyone being treated like this? Then I went back into the filthy toilet, locked the door, and broke down into tears. Context of white supremacy. End of our first audio segment. Wow. What a conclusion. End of chapter two. We'll start. We'll be at the very beginning of chapter three. Dear Senator. Much better with a female narrator as it should be. We'll pick up at the beginning of chapter three. If you have commentary to share, the number 720-716-7300. The code five six four nine four three pound press star six one if you would like to participate. Number again seven two zero seven one six seven three hundred. The code five six four nine four three pound press star six one if you would like to participate since gusty didn't have to do the narration this week i got unexpected free time i took my free time made two trips to the university of washington library wow wow Uh, and i even got to do some showing off so you heard last week we read the very first segment and I said Miss Essie May's story reminded me immediately of Janetta Rose Barris she was a guest on the cows in 2013 she wrote the book whatever happened to daddy's little girl you heard her in the introduction right found that uh, I got that archive. I posted it online. That's even time stamped. I posted it online. Found all of that at the beginning part of this week. 
I went to the library again today because I had already found great information, right? I, when I, in fact, I'd already recorded the introduction where I was saying, oh man, I got great information to share as we go. I went back today. They have literally, if you go like and just do a random search, like at the library for SMA Washington Williams, it pulled up thousands of articles so I you know couldn't sit there and look through thousands but I could and did look through hundreds as I was rolling today I scrolled and I said oh did that say Janetta Rose Barris because I was just kind of rolling and, and trying to look to see what caught my eye so I had to roll back and look Janetta Rose Barris Cal's guest from 2013 wrote a report in the Washington Post on December 25 2003 which is significant for some right white Jesus and all that uh, the report is titled life without father I'm just going to read it in its entirety because wow and this is a little bit of showing off since I did mention her last week she writes the recent declaration by Essie Mae Washington Williams that she is the daughter from what she termed un affair between the late U.S. Senator J. Strom Thurmond, Republican South Carolina, who was then 22 years old, and Carrie Butler, a vulnerable 16-year-old maid in his parents' home, has been used by the media, civil rights leaders, and others to posthumously whip a segregationist one last time before his body turns too cold in the grave. Undoubtedly, there is much to criticize about the long dark career of a man who with contemporaries that included former Alabama Governor George Wallace, Arkansas Governor Earl Faubus, Mississippi Senator James Eastland, and Birmingham's Theopolis Eugene Bull Connor promoted the poison of anti-federalism and racialism that continued to wreak havoc on the country decades after the height of their popularity, prowess, and deaths. That Thurman talked white but slept black has served as the central theme of much of the derisive commentary. Washington Williams certainly stands as indisputable testimony to his life of hypocrisy and the complicated texture of race in America. The equally compelling and perhaps more instructive narrative of a daughter's longing for father writ large by Washington Williams' life has yet to draw sufficient attention. After meeting Thurman for the first time at age 16 and facing the impending death of her mother, she sought to hold onto her only remaining parent. She accepted a sacramental silence to ensure that she might experience, even remotely, the affections of a father. That enormous sacrifice continued for 62 years, despite repeated questioning by curious reporters and citizens. The drive for parental love is powerful. I was sensitive about his well-being, his career, and his family. She said last week, attempting to explain why it had taken her so long to come forward. I never wanted to do anything to harm him. Behind closed doors and seemingly suppressed emotional expressions, she may have found a little of what she desired. 
I knew him beyond his public image, Washington Williams said when challenged about his segregationist ways. That statement serves as testament to the strategic machinations of children who, seeking parental love, are prepared to exorcise from their reality or blatantly ignore facts that might prevent them from achieving their goal. And yet, Thurmond apparently was not present at key moments in her life. He did not attend any father-daughter dance, was not there at Sunday dinners or next to her in the church pew. He was not there on any Christmas day so that his daughter might sit on his lap and thank him with hugs and kisses for the presence or the sheer pleasure of his presence nor did he walk her down the aisle when she married. There were annual visits and regular financial support, but the fundamental and critical intimacy of a father-daughter relationship apparently eluded her and Thurman, even as she paid a price few of us may be willing to pay. In many respects, however, Washington Williams is like millions of women in the world today who dreamed of an unconditional requited love from that first man in their lives a man who is supposed to protect them usher their entry into society and serve as their guide to manhood on far too many occasions because of death divorce or physical or emotional abandonment those dreams go unfulfilled Walk any street in America and there is a choir of the wounded singing the fatherless woman dirge as Washington Williams does. These women are of all ages and all economic and ethnic backgrounds. I have met them during the past three years at conferences where I have spoken and through letters and emails they have written to me. They are women who never met their fathers or who met their fathers late in life or who knew their fathers but could not, at the risk of ravaging an entire community, acknowledge him and could not be acknowledged by him. These women suffer in silence or speak only in hushed tones in private rooms and gatherings where they know others will feel their pain. Most people accept that boys are affected profoundly by their fathers, but experts also point to an array of effects a father can have in a girl's life. We are only just beginning to recognize this potent influence and thus the enormous handicap created when it is not felt. Although Washington Williams may not exhibit the obvious signs of the fatherless woman syndrome, there can be no doubt that Thurman's absence in her daily life and their decision not to acknowledge each other publicly was a source of exquisite pain and grief, I would add, and confusion. During the last week's news conference, her voice cracked and her eyes welled with tears. Other fatherless women and I wept with her, knowing as we do the anguish and anxiety with which she has lived. We hope that telling of her tale will cause some father to gather the courage to reach out to his daughter. But even if he does not, one thing is certain. 
Washington Williams can at last embrace finally and wholly a father she had been partially denied. It matters not whether the public still will view him as a segregationist or characterize her merely as his biracial daughter failing to see beyond race. She is free of a burdensome secret. Perhaps now one hopes she can begin to truly heal from a life of loss and the unspoken longing it caused. Life Without Father, Janetta Rose Barris, December 25, 2003, Washington Post. Rummaging at the library, and I found lots more. That was just one that I found today. Incidentally, I will just say quickly, wow, great insight. Guest on the couch, you can go back and hear lots of what she had to say, but I think it's substantially different if you have a racist child raping father who is out publicly talking bad about Negras all the time and for decades and that's your deadbeat white dad I think that is substantially different from just the normal I mean you confusion that's why I said I don't think we understand even if yeah you you don't have a father if you're a male or female and you're missing a parent that is a substantially different and intense component to add this is not somebody that's just down the street or doesn't want anything to do with me this is someone who has made a lucrative career practicing racism against the negros me Seven two zero seven one six seven three hundred. The code five six four nine four three pound. Press star six one if you would like to participate. Uh, folks who dialed in with a hand up, if you have commentary to share, proceed. Greetings, everyone. Retired firefighter in Florida. This time around, I heard the rodent food. Squirrels, groundhogs. Got it the first time around, sir. Yeah, I, I thought I was hearing, hearing uh, such uh, animals <laughs> uh, when it was uh, someone was talking about a quote-unquote food source. Uh, yeah, but with this particular segment of reading, the first thing that comes to my mind is the word disgraceful. Uh, uh, but anyway, uh, uh, well, actually starting from the from the start, uh, I wrote down, I just wrote, I wrote down a statement, ignorance uh, becomes a weapon. Uh, I was just hearing the exchange between uh, the uh, the subject and uh, the principal person and and uh, I think it was what her her mother uh, and how between the exchange of of uh, the quote unquote Jim Jim Crow laws uh, it was a 
kind of like a lack of understanding. Uh, I think that may come from uh, those who do know it, it hadn't circulated enough to spread to whereas uh, a a uh, larger number of non-white people would be more informed of uh, the strategy of racism, white supremacy that was going on in that in that area on the planet. Uh, I have uh, also, uh, they, yeah, only they only get pieces. What she was demonstrating was only pieces of the information, not not how it connected and affected her as well as a collective of non-white victims. Uh, while at the same time, white people would pretend uh, would pretend that uh, they don't have they don't know anything about uh, the past. Uh, and then again, the word segregation, the word segregation, in my mind, I always substitute that word for racism or white supremacy. It, every time I hear that word segregation, uh, and anybody can correct me if, I, if if it sounds incorrect, that you can actually replace that that word with racism or racism white supremacy. The word the word segregation. Uh, uh, yes. Uh, uh, every time I hear something about the the quote unquote southern part of the uh, like Mr. Fuller said, the Northwestern Hemisphere, uh, they talk about the flower magnolia. I, I've heard, I heard that that uh, term, that term of that flower, uh, and it, and it, it, you think about the uh, the antebellum South uh, when you hear hear that uh, that flower. Uh, she also talked about the big city. And from a quote unquote black perspective, that that basically is a situation where a whole lot of uh, non-white black people looking for different opportunities crowded into, you know, places and that sort of thing. And uh, it all just becomes a facade of one group of white non-white people thinking that their situation is better than where they left from. Uh, only to find out that that really isn't true. Uh, uh, my uh, parents and the uh, people that I grew up around uh, came to that conclusion, conclusion uh, themselves uh, into going to places like Chicago or uh, uh, out west, California, and whatever, that sort of thing. Uh yeah, I'll just cut to uh, the, the the meeting with uh, the quote-unquote dad. Uh, I'm not surprised about his his uh, behavior. Uh, very cunning, very professional, uh, as opposed to uh, someone may have been thinking that uh, the first thing it would it would have been some sort of uh, 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 monster-like, uh, savage-like uh, 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 
activity going on, very cunning and very professional, you know, about it. It's kind of like, kind of like meeting a, a child that was on a tour <laughs> through, through his house or something, you know, uh, shaking the handshake, that sort of thing. And I think she, I think she gave a good description about what she felt about it. Eventually she did. Eventually she did. I don't want to forget also the, the, the reader, the reader that came to your aid, kudos to her because in my imagination, in my imagination, that is the principal person talking. <laughs> I, I mean, I, I mean, of course, I never heard her voice or anything, you know, that sort of thing. But it, it, it sounds very appropriate, you know, and so kudos to her, uh, the uh the uh, the the uh, reader who uh, came to your aid, uh, she's doing a very good job, and uh, I'll just hold the rest of my uh, report because I just wrote down a lot of scribbly notes, and that's it. Thank you. Much obliged, retired firefighter in Florida, and kudos to our narrator. Whew. Heavy lifting, get a little assistance. Excellent work. Uh, let's see. Other folks dialed in with uh, hand yeah. up commentary to share. Can I be heard? Uh, victim in New Jersey. Yes, sir. Y- yes. Um, oh, man, you know, uh, retired firefighter. He's definitely right. Uh, my family escaped North Carolina to come to New Jersey uh, to move into um, high-rise tenements. And, you know, a lot of uh, family members, you know, got kind of caught in the whole uh, crack era, mass incarceration era, you know what I mean? So definitely, definitely, you know what I mean? We, we definitely, I agree with five, uh, retired firefighters. No difference in the north and south. But um, uh, my father drew instructions, Gus, and I listened to the Jonah Lucas interview and now reading listening to this book read, man, oof, I mean, uh, it, it, it just basically, uh, it, it basically really, really reinforces and improves that tragic arrangement. arrangements are definitely not needed in a system of white supremacy. Um, they saw the, the reader said that uh, the mother said uh, all that sheep talk was just politics. I mean, you know, politics, as the book described, with uh, unemployed black men, you know, traveling north to south for employment, or just basically just, um, you know, sitting around looking miserable. Um you know that that's that's just not hate talk. <laughs> you know what I mean? That's racism, white supremacy. That's white politics weaponized. And um, you know, and again, like I said, just to reference uh, the Joyner Lucas uh, interview that you suggested we check out when we took, when he expressed the ratchetness of black women and the upward mobility of white women, you know, those ratchet black women might have been able to 
be upwardly mobile if their fathers wasn't subject to what they were subject to, like the reader described in the book. Um, it said that uh, the the and, and and also you know even with the whole CRT argument and and again I mean Francis Cross Wells reading is more important than watching television. So you have this argument, anti-argument about black history, but black people had to suffer under Confederate rule and Confederate um, not-so-good education, 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 piety of your life. And, you you know, as a black man, you, you you probably was either still working on the sessions that you were free from or you were just unemployed altogether. Um, man, so uh, Ben Tillman also basically in the, in the, in the reading it said, uh, you know, he hated, he hated Yankees. No, he hated blacks, but, you know, hate Yankees the same, northerners. You know, and he blamed them for, you know, a lot of, this, you know, their troubles down south. Sounds familiar, you know, liberal, blacks, synonymous with each other. You know, same same rhetoric, similar rhetoric. Um, man, and, and just to know that Strong Thurman, I don't know if he was the protege or, you know, he was, you know, I mean, he learned how to firmly shake a man's hand. My pitchfork, Ben Tillman. I mean, wow. You know, so again, it, it's 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 amazing, you know. And 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 I, you know, just to know this history, so you can just basically make the make some of the correlations and, and kind of like get a better context of what you see now. You know, when people talk about racism, they often talk about slavery. Like from 1865 until the killing of Martin Luther King, like all that was omitted. Like all black oppression was just slave, you know, just you know, came about from slavery. The slaves was free, and it ended. But um, wow, this this I mean, I feel sorry for this victim whose father was Strong Thurman, because she was definitely a victim in all of this. So, you know, I'll yield. Much, much obliged. Uh, oh, oh, oh. Let's see. Uh, <clears throat> cont- oh, 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 oh. Let's see. Let's see. Let's see. Am I heard? Hello? Hello? Am I being heard? Am I being heard? Hello? I can hear you. Oh, okay. Thank you, kindly. Thank you, appreciate it. Um, the the uh, that's so. I don't know why that happened. Happened. Anyway, um, 
the much obliged I'm in New Jersey. Get my notes really, really quick. Uh, all right, all right. So one of our investors, uh, he, uh, he wrote in his Ontario begins. Let, let's see. This this book's written in junction with. William Sim, a suspected racist, has written other books about white celebrities, Frank, Frank, Frank Sinatra and Marilyn Monroe. I wonder how he, he influenced it of this story. Uh, should you try to get him as a guest, as a guest if he's living? I did check, check out his um, website uh, and contact inf- information, so we will see. He is a white person, so yeah, he would be he, a possibility. Let's see. Um... Chapter 2, Preston Brooks, Charles Sumner Brooks was never finished uh, for the assault, never apologized, and, and was hit by his constituents. Typical, typical for South Carolina. Number 2, Essie May, my mother, said of her own, meet your father. They were in love, clear in love. There was a time when in, when in my own state that I would have unquestioningly accepted that they were in love. I recall several years ago, years ago I was more confused reading about the acclaimed book, Oh... I thought about this book uh, in the same. We had an author uh, of Thomas Jefferson and biography was on the program, program uh, in like 2015, and <clears throat> that is so odd. It seems, am, am I seeing her? Everybody can still hear me. You 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 you're you're coming out as a echo, a lot, Gus. It's like a I'm, echo. I'm not. I'm so bizarre. I'm not. Uh, Wanna give me one I mean, second? I Make sure you I hear you. my uh, connect here. Give me one second. All righty, got my audio. Uh, uh, I think I'm being heard now. Oh, okay, I can I can see my audio. It's still a little bizarre. I'm not uh, getting my audio uh, where I was able to hear my hear my my feedback before, but like the audio meter is moving. So so. And folks can hear me if uh, y'all can just speak up, speak up. If something happens, you're hearing dead space, and I'm not being uh, heard. Crazy tech issues. I'll get back to my notes. Uh, let me. All righty. Uh, oh, I was reading, reading all his notes. Sorry. All right. Number two. Essie May, my mother said with a big smile of her, of her own. Your father, they were in love, clearly in love. There was, there was a Gordon Reed. That book has been so so many times come up on the program before. As I went, we had a white author biography wrote a biography on Thomas Jefferson, and he talked about that book book and how we're trying to convince you that yeah this was a plantation romance and having Thomas Jefferson loved each other. Same thing with this uh, Strom Thurmond, Essie May, May. Are you serious? Same thing thing. Gigantic age difference. This is a child and a grown white man. man are you serious? Confusion. You will have vic- victims who will believe this. And oh, it was a romance. We uh, another vic- victim on the program did the same th- thing that it, uh, talking about something on the plantation that this is love, love, love. Fine. <sighs> Anyway, he says, uh, I recall several years ago when I was confused reading about the, about the clinic, Thomas Jefferson and Sally Hemings, an American controversy by, by victim Annette Greed, which was published in 1997, the premise of, of which Thomas Jefferson and Sally Hemings were in a love-love relation, not child rape. Number three, Brunswick stew, a southern stew containing potatoes, chicken, and or rabbit salt. 
tomatoes, corn, and, and lima beans may have its or, origin in Germany. Don't, don't recall such as being talked about by southern black, black people. Me. Number four, Edfield, William Truss, and James Bonham, who, who fought at the Mo. Suspected racist President John Quincy Adams is saying about the Alamo, a war for the re-establishment of slavery was abolished. Innumerable books and movies have served to maintain the myth- mythology saying the battle of the Alamo. Absolutely. Uh, let's see. Number five. General Matthew, Matthew Butler, Francis Pickens, Olga Neva, George Washington Thurman, a William Thurmond on a man in cold blood, pitchfork Ben Tillman. It was Ben Tillman who, t- who taught Strom to shake hands like, like that. Additional details regarding the history of Eddie of South Carolina and, and these white tourists is available. The excellent Cal- Cal's Book Club, Ben Tillman, and the reconstruction of white, white supremacy narrated by yours truly. Number, number six, they liked them so much they both became gynecologists. This is one of, one of the most disturbing lines I have read recently. Atrocities that these the psychopaths perform. perform. J. Marion Sims, also in South Carolina, another statue they did not take down. And, and man, if Strom Thurman and his relatives are flirting with and raping 15, 15 year old children, my God, like, what are they going to do as psychologists? You might have someone who, who's, you know, put them under or what have you, so they're conscious. <sighs> we'll stop there. We can get, we can get chapter three. Uh, all right, so I'll get to my note, notes, and we'll see how much, much time we have. Folks uh, have additional comments that they want to get in. Again, just remember to speak up. If uh, anything wacky happens, happen, you're not hearing me in the audio. Let's see. Okay. <clears throat> Uh, so the notes that I took for, for chapter two, she starts, so we're going to South, South Carolina. One of her mother's sisters has passed, passed away, or her mom, yeah, yeah, one of her mom's sisters away from back to South Carolina. She says, the first part of the trip was very elegant. Uh, we sat in the, in the parlor with those dapper white people and equally dapper, dapper and black porters. These are like, this is the best you can aspire to, to at this time is to be a black railroad porter. And you were not treated well. A Philip Randolph uh, had to organize about this and all the rest of like the best you can hope for, for at that time. Um, the white, white, all this, the white marble template carry our history expert told us was the link for you, our friend who delivered a liver from evil. Hmm. And he, she said that she had to wonder about his legacy. Like, I do not fight and and from what? Lincoln wasn't even inter- interested in the stage of Lincoln Reed, Leron Bennett's, Leron Bennett Jr.'s outstanding biography, Forced Into Glory, but, but that is for another day. I'll see. Next. <clears throat> is this book an extraordinary documentation of male privilege in 20th century World War II era. Didn't we hear such black male privilege? Did notice what was a lot of very, very sad black men and just lolling about on beaches, benches, excuse me, excuse me, bench beaches, benches at the train station. What are they doing? I asked. Just what you, you see. Nothing. Now that is, is a barrel of male privilege. Isn't that some black privilege for you? And, and patriarchal, sex, sexist blacks who just sitting around, twiddling the thumbs, spinning all, spinning all their time, figuring out how they, they're going to oppress Carrie Butler and black females. 
something, something like that, I'm sure. Let's see. She says, she continues, she says, she says, as the train through the endless Miss Virginia tobacco fields, coon man, I saw more and more scenes of BB's unemployed black men sitting, sitting endlessly at, at all whistle stop stations with absolutely nothing to, to do. Black male, male privilege? Maybe, maybe this is where black male privilege kick in. Maybe it didn't kick in until like the 80s or, or so. Maybe we just, just recently entered the era of black male privilege, which with George Floyd. She continues, she says uh, that North, North Carolina is the valley of humility between two mountains of country. The mountains are South Carolina and Virginia. What? I couldn't even get the WTH because her sister said, speak English. Talking full talk. Walk. What, what does that even mean? The, the Wilmington Purge, 1898. Like, like, what are you talking Humility. What? What? <sighs> I've got to read about that one, one day. day. Continuing. She says, uh, because of oh, that, uh, she says the big ranchers in South Carolina, South Carolina had no idea what to do, to do without uh, us. The slaves. I never thought about myself as a slave, or descendant of slaves. But as I as I said, this trip would open my eyes. Now I mean, wow, wow. We're still slaves, and and encouraged not to think ourselves as slaves then and now. They call they call uh, migrant workers, and that what they say they say. Enslaved, they find all different cute, cute, uh, just, just call me a slave. Make sure we don't have confusion. Much rather have, have confusion than you to hurt my feelings by calling me a slave when I am a slave. If you want, you want to be offended about something and be offended that the label is accurate. Let's see. They didn't lose Confederate. They gave all this at the Confederate flag. I'm not most people. Just, oh, oh, wow! That flag down down after Dylan Storm Roof shot up all those people. Uh, State Senator Reverend Clement Mentepney at at others. They did take down one flag. They did not take down Strom Thurmond's statue or Tillman's statue or J. Marion Incent statue. Not that you could take, take down all the issues of racists or that I would even encourage that, that, but they did take the tacky flag down at the state capitol. Tacky all the way. Remember that? Even on, on that one, take, I can scrape the bucket. Remember, he knew some cowbell there as, as well. At least that one was age-appropriate, I think. Let's see. Wait, 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 wait. We saw the Confederate flag, flag and then what we saw Carolina at, at bus station full of more privileged, patriarchal, sex, toxic, sleeping black men. Black male privilege? Guess, maybe. Incidentally, when I kept this over and over and over about all these sitting around, sleeping, idle, doing nothing, the males. That's the same thing I saw when I went to to Atlanta, and I left e- immediately to get to Seattle. <sighs> Black males sitting around in, in rate numbers, do, doing nothing. And this is how many years later? Whole different century. Same thing. Black male privilege? She continues. 
oh my gosh, what's going on? The bus fluttered into Edge Edgefield. Dump was my, my first impression. It was a tiny village village of stories centering around a square square dominant a tall obelisk. Uh, wait a moment, phallic symbol. As there, as there was no bus station, we were out at the square. More silent, sad black men were standing around shade. None, however, were working on the benches in the square. Now, one, in, in this, for the fact that at she's 16 at this age, and this is the thing has stood out when you remember and you go to sit, sit down to write you more 60 years later and stood out in your, in your mind, completely state after state, not the, the fruit, not the flowers, the architecture, then and out, out and impotent black males. Well, she continues. After we stomped up over all these black males to get the edge to edge, uh, she says, then the mansions began, and I suddenly, suddenly began. Carrie was, was right. There was a lot of money here in nowhere. They all looked like Tara and Gone with the Wind. Great patient houses on tall, sloping hills. Most houses were gleaming white, as if they had just been painted. Probably, probably had some of those do-nothing black males. I saw men at work, black men gardening, planting these imposing houses. Some called Gus T. Imposing. Toxic, toxic black. Uh, let's, let's see. That's how you can be intoxicated. You, you got up to work. Put them in prison, put them in cash, trade them, trade them, see. Got a code. Uh, Non-governors, Carrie repeated. Now, uh, uh, confusion, brain train trashing. It would maybe be different if some of the governors were black. Maybe it would be if had been kindly and hooked with a scholarship or something like that. But, I mean, gang of racist, rape-raping white men. And you see consistently this sort of pride from victims in this book cry about racist ancestors or just the white people in Abraham Lincoln non-governors not even talking about Strom Thurmond because he's in that number yet he hasn't even got there yet so we're just talking, talking about other white racists and rapists let's see, let's see. continue she talks, talks about meeting her aunt Bertha uh, who she said this woman who was the sister, sister of my two mothers, but who looked looked nothing like she was a country lady. They were city girls. They thought thought the thought crossed my, my mind that maybe they might have gained weight and looked like her if they if they had remained down here. And I found that interesting for a lot of reasons. Reasons because they had a lot of food, but how to process that more? Uh, <laughs> what all that is it's about? Maybe comp- compensating for the mistreatment. You just eat just eat. Not a whole lot else to do. More options uh, up north. Uh, let's see, no running, no electricity, no water, no phone, no nothing. I, I thought how it was. Back, back in luxury, my home in Coatesville, where Raya Walker was lynched. As my eyes adjusted to the dark, however, I did, did see some of them tattered antiques, big brass, a love seat, and some cracked mirrors. They looked like ancient hounds from the mansions on the hill. Now, I mean, some of that is direct. All of, all of that is white supremacy, race, racism, specifically with the electricity runner, Phone lines, all of that. When you put those lines, lines and things, sewage lines and all that, of course we start with the white people first, and we may, may get to niggers, you know, you know, to you all. This is what you end up with. Deliberate. 
talked about the same thing with pollution. They didn't hear about all that. So they probably got all the shifts and where uh, uh, um, waste and other pollutants and toxins all runs to the where these are for the negras. She continue. Oh, look at this! I told y'all last week. So we talked about hush puppies. Like she says, we got all fried food, fried chicken. Talk about gate wink wink gaming. Fried chicken, pickled collard green steaming, fluffy, fluffy biscuits with melting butter. My first taste of hush puppies, which were for fried balls of cornmeal designed to throw to the hounds to keep them quiet. They sure shut me up. So we've heard that that twice. These are the type of little signs that I'll take sometimes. Like, oh, maybe that's a signal from the creator. That I did pick the the correct book we're supposed to be reading. Reading because she just had our female caller talk about. Matter of fact, she's actually for a soldier on her her job. Asked her like trivia. Trivia. Hey, do you know where where hush puppies come? And he said the exact same thing. No talking about food in the workplace either. When he when he probably his book that might be because, have you read uh dear Senator, you read that book by book by chance? Yeah. Anyway, uh, and this is where she squirrel meat, groundhog, lots of rodents. Uh let's see, they continue. Uh they uh, they got black milking cigarettes, that'll, you know, kill you quick quick. Uh well, let's see. Oh my god. Finally she says she's arrived. At a, at a one-way white building, white, that had law office, Thurman and Thurman, attorneys at law, that saw the sign, said, was it my new daddy was a driver for a big shot lawyer. We went up the, the steps, knocked on the door, a black servant in a white coat opened the door. I would throw my arms around him, but he just, just looked at me blankly. When you play, play around with sex, and this is a six-year-old joke, is on the offspring. It would almost be funny, but but I mean, there is nothing funny about that at, at all. Like that is trauma. People end up in therapy for years over that sort of thing. Father, whatever happened to Hattie's little girl? She says a, a, a fair in the word God a, a fair, and he is so not fair. Pale, nigher, handsome man entered the room a little nervously. I thought as he tipped over a stand-stand tray, I'd be nervous too. Yes, I raped your mother at your age. He, he wore a blue suit and tie and looked every inch the look of a plantation. I mean, if you want to say religion of, of what supremacy, the Lord of a plantation. It couldn't be the master of a plantation, the owner of a plantation, manager of a, the Lord, God. Religion of white, white supremacy. Hey, this is how, how we have been conditioned. She is a victim and, and, and worth it. If anything is in this book, Mr. Fuller calls this maximum racist Aggression, a white having sexual intercourse with a non-person, and you see, you see the result both on the, the parent victim and the offspring spring of all the tragic all the way around. Uh, you have oh god, let me back. Let's see. You have a young daughter. I mean, that is so like <laughs> trifling. Is not not. <laughs> Dead beat white death doesn't even even to it. You, I raped you at sixteen, and and you have a love lovely daughter. 
this is the statue that they keep up and puppet. I can conclude that, hey, white people, they like this. All of them. We like ring black children. That's why the statue didn't count. That's why we keep doing it. That's all I can conclude, because they're not ignorant about, about this. That's why we read book Professor J. Russell Hawkins. He said he's ignorant, ignorant, lying. Neither would come uh, suffice. He said he didn't know. Neither would suffice. suffice. It's of articles. I can read them as long as you want to go. This is all over the New York Times with the eight. You read the black child. This is the result of it. Of it. You, you have a lovely daughter. Get out of here. <laughs> this is not the era where she's got an iPhone in her pocket where she might be some extorter woman who's going to try and build for a million dollars. Like, get out of here. I says, now that I said I saw real father was a handsome, and rich white lawyer, my first thought was whether Mary Mary knew this, or she does. And if so, why didn't she tell me? How do you even begin that conversation? Ain't, ain't this in her place to, to tell you? Your mom needs to do this, or this white man needs to do them this. But I mean, how do I even begin that conversation? I'm not your mom. I'm, I'm your aunt. A white man raped you. He was 16. We're taking care of you. In, in fact, that white dude down in South Carolina that talks about his body hates all the time. That's your dear dad. How do I bring to that conversation? Let's see. Ah, yeah, care sheets. Wing that he might be the 10th governor, which he was. I uh, talked about Strom Thurmond. I see. Next. When he went out two chairs just to offer a seat to my mother and me, his hand brushed over her over hers, held it out there there just a moment longer. Her eyes looked up and met his. They were in love. Glee in love. Oh. In that second I could tell what was going on. It was as strange to me as seeing aliens from another galaxy. <laughs> this is child rape? Here, you can uh, try to pre it up and obfuscate and, well, well, there is a lot. This, and even if she had been 55, can you imagine in 1925, maybe even in 2005, but can you imagine 1925 South, South Carolina? A black female, 15, 25, 35, a white man or a white woman, someone next with you. You work for them, them in their house. No way. Get away from me. Really? Really? Well, I have to mention 16 and a white male, grown white man. You're going to defy him and get fired? Even just say, say that's the myth. You get fired. The prayer, you get fired. A little bit before the, before the depression. Oh, uh, let's see. My God, the aunt that died worked for the family. They were probably raping her too. They've, they've described how these brothers were called ladies' men and became gynecologists. And uh, I think Gary even said, said that Truman started talk, talking to her because her brother was flirting with her f- uh, first. So I'm sure they're raping all of the black female staff members, probably probably some of the staff members too. Can't say and say no. We'll do. Pitchfork Ben Tillman land. What are you going to do? Who knows how she died? Let's see. 
uh, 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 he looked up and then like a prize cat. cat. <laughs> Let's see. He tells her to be careful about that fried food, which I which I went. It's that's like, like he lived to it. Like he's supposed to be kind of a health nut. Uh, where he was always talking about eating correctly, telling people to walk everything, everything, everything that he told. Those who did this, you know, entire life, he did live to be a hundred. Even some listeners pointed that you want to talk about white supremacy, racism, and what dom- domination look. Strongman lived to be a hundred. Carrie Butler died at thirty. That. Domination look looks like not an accident. Uh, let's see, but do drink as much water as you, as you can. Yeah, try to get try to get that walking. Uh, let's let's see. This is a town where the boys love to fight. Oh my gosh! One pitchfork Ben Tillman. The reconstruction of the white supremacy in the book club. You can go back and read it. The red shirts. It's terrorism about it. All all of that. Uh, while at the library, I, I was able to put hands on all God's children in a game book I've had repeatedly that was supposed to read in 2015 to follow Ben Tillman's filmography. <sighs> Willie Basket is who that book is about, one of the main Kane characters in it, Ben Tillman and, and all that. I was just talking talk about Willie Basket like days ago, literally, with, with one of our West on the program. Like, oh, we were, we were supposed to be just looking, maybe not knock down all God's children. Uh all at the same time. Uh, but what, that's what that book is all, is all about. This town, whole tradition, dueling, lynching, lynching black people, terrorizing even white people, bra- bragging about painting of Charles Sumner and bragging about that, that incident, the whole history of South Carolina and maybe white culture globally. Uh, let's see. He says it again. You have, you have a lovely daughter. She points points that out. Me has heard about that, and I mean, rightfully so. Oh, uh, let's see. Oh, the, whoa, whoa, whoa. let's get it. We'll get it one more time. When he closed the day, his office, and we were standing out out on the street main square with all the sleeping bookmen. And all I can say is this: a recollection. From from we sixteen years old, this book doesn't doesn't come out this century. I know if I'm gonna I'm gonna live old enough where, where I can think back to something something happened sixty years ago ago. Being gay is dangerous, so I might not live here to be here that long. I mean, to to have a memory from sixty years ago and what seems to be to be an indelible prime component of, of this massive vacation going to meet your dad for the first time and all of that is notes down and out black male. male. That should be emphasized. We go through the text even put put especially because she comes back back not too long she, she comes and she says uh Oh I, have, oh, I have to get it. I'll pick it out later, later on, because there's so much in between. She says, uh, Pitchfork Ben Tillman, we got that in. So glad we read that, that biography already. 
Ron Thurman learning directly from Ben Tillman. Uh, 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 uh. And she used how could strong men, men who led black men, could the son, son of this architect of white supremacist fall in love? There's that woman with my mother, a black woman who was a, was a black child. Uh, this is not love. I mean, <laughs> shrugged rather en- enigmatic. Love is love. What does that even mean? It's colorblind. Oh my God. Fusion is lethal. Gussie used to used to say that all the time. Confusion is lethal. Uh, besides, all hate talk is just is just politics. I'm sure you can ask some of those was lame sleeping black males. Is it just politics that you can't get a job? You can lynched for any old reason, any old just justification. Is that politics you think? Not be not be. If you have offspring and they can't go go to Columbia University or Winthrop University or any other uh, uh, of knowledge, where you could be a doctor, you could be a geologist, that you and every everyone in your family is automatically prohibited attending any of the. You can't even go to public. Public. Oh, he just that's just politics. That's you know. Eh, eh, really mean that. Confusion is legal. I mean, hey, does this sound like a black person who has an A-plus under- understanding of, like, when they say all the, all the time, who's confused about racism? Does this sound, sound like a black person who is knowledgeable about white supremacy, racism, racism, what it is? Something to keep in mind as well, as well since we hear frequently. Uh, uh, she says he was 15. The article that we read in a few says she's 16, 16. I'm going to take it because I think she would know, know her mom. She says her mom was 15 at the time, time, maybe 16 by the time the child was born. Uh, so that's fine. But I mean, 15 and 23, yeah, 16 is no better. But uh, well, let's see. In 1925, he was 23. She was 50. He was 50. She and her sister made bed, bed, cleaned, and did basic. Probably both of them being raped. He was known for, for having an eye for the ladies. <laughs> These are not like ladies, the children. And he was, as you can see, that now. even all the talk is kind of. Do people people talk? Is is it bizarre to be talking about your rapist as him? Oh, late Alice Ebold didn't talk about. Uh, Anthony Broadwater and how handsome he he was. She wanted to kill him. Uh, um, Big Mr. Wills, the nicest man you ever met, always took into me, probably wanted to rape her too. Please and thank you. Thank you. Sometimes he picked flowers and give them to me, brought clothes for our whole family, sweet sugar. So the other stuff was just pop politics. He was Norman Legree. She's referring to the evil slave driver in Tom's cabin. cabin. Uh, we didn't have my own Mrs. Thurman. She described as polite but distant, probably because she knows uh, her her husband has a thing for dark oak, as do her her children. Not stupid. Uh, let's see. Um, he she says for Alan George, who also became a doctor, flirted with her two boys, liked women. These are children, child rapists. Um. 
Oh, this was it. Kip Carey said, pressed with the domestic skills, such a manly seeming man talking about Strom Thurmond. Now, I mean, hey, if you can make it in a system of white white supremacy, so all the black male are lame and can't go to school and can't get get jobs and they sit around. They can't eat. I said, sit sit around. said specifically, they weren't sitting benches in, in South Carolina. So they just stand around idly, sleeping and doing nothing. Unless a white person, a person will hire grunt work, nigger work, as call it. A man like Strom Thurmond, who get education and get a job and a mansion and has money, he would seem like a manly man. We've read the man in the high castle. That would be Strom Thurmond. Ben Tillman, the man, the woman in the cis white supremacy. Let's see. Mm-mm-mm-mm-mm. He really liked you, Carrie said me. Liked my disappointment in her choice of word. Loved. Did he love you? You that word was bold enough to ask her. I hope, hope so. I think so. <sighs> Victim. Uh. Anything else, else I need to get in before we get? Oh, my last one. I just want to get. She was forever. This is uh, Essie, Miss Essie made to me talking about her mom Butler. She was forever talking about being forgiven for her sins. Now I knew what, what her sins were and a direct result of them. I was also paying for them in the worst way. way and I'm sure, she too, maybe, maybe that explained why she had become so religious, much more, more so than her Sir Mary. This is this, uh, so, so sad. Uh, confusion is lethal. Lethal. Um, and, and, and the impact, in my view, the religion of white supremacy. Harry Butler is victim, and I'm in the worst, worst way victim. If there is a so-called sinner here, it is Strom Thurmond. Uh, now, all of this feeling of shame and guilt, I think that it can be common um, amongst victims of sexual abuse and even victim of white supremacy at large, feeling we did something to want all of this, this, that is the, the another layer of the, of the abuse. Uh, and all of Strom Thurmond, like a thousand percent blame, all of that. Does he love it? What are you, are you talking? He, he is a child rapist. How does that even be? That's con- confusion when you have to try to make sense of them, when you have been victim. And you, you are probably going back to, I can't say no. So she's 15. What do you mean I'm going to say no to a white man? man. Kill black people for fun in South Carolina and brag about God, man, I mean, hey, hey, it's 2022. 19.5, I'm going to be a 15-year-old black female, and I'm going to say no to a white man? man? I'm going to do best I can to keep myself from going, going crazy or to minimize the sanity that would be caused from an event like that. And... and just try to do the best as she's moving forward, which it sounds like that's what she's doing. Hopefully I can get some, some support from my daughter and Curry, you know, try to make the best of this. But I, but I mean, just Christ. This victims of white religion, white supremacy on that level, because she said he was like the Lord of a plantation. How, how am I going to say no to white Jesus? We will pause us here. Second audience audio segment. A, a segment forthcoming.
Uh, if you have additional thoughts and what have you, just just main note. Uh, we will get to us on the other hand. And, yeah, that's until we get to the second, second audio segment. I see other folks who dialed in. John and John have ample time to share after the second audio segment. We're picking up on chapter three. Dear Senator, assuming a Washington Williams memoir, a context of white supremacy, whew, reading, reading more important than television. Chapter three, Reconstruction. I didn't see or hear from my new father for nearly a year. It was so long that it seemed like that meeting with him had never happened at all. My mother went back to Chester, I went back to Coatesville, and life went on almost as before. I say almost because once something like the facts of your birth get into your head, you never can be the same again. In my darkest hours, I began to look at all black people as victims and white people as oppressors, and everything in America struck me as grossly unfair. In my brightest hours, I began to look at myself as someone very special, an amalgam of all that was great about America. I had a brilliant white father and a beautiful black mother. Was I not the golden child? Alas, the real Essie May fell somewhere between these two poles. I was too humble to be conceited, too meek to be a firebrand. My mantra was accept, and accept I did, at least outwardly. Yet inside me was pure turbulence. Because of Mary's conditioning me to keep my mouth shut, and because of the precarious and ephemeral nature of my relationship with my new parent, I always felt I was skating on very thin ice. On the other hand, I had no desire to get off the pond. I remained fearful, cautious, and deeply insecure. I was uncomfortable in the way I would have guessed that spies were uncomfortable, having to juggle different identities, present different facades. Yet, I was also thrilled to have the chance to play this game, because these new parents were so intriguing, and because they were my real folks. What child could resist the idea of being with his or her real parents? Hence, I was in a perpetual state of anxiety. The only way to deal with all this disequilibrium was to ground myself in the obligations of school and work. Working at Coatesville Hospital in my nurse's aid job that summer, I now became hyper-aware of how second-class the black patients were being treated. Even here, in the so-called enlightened North, our own promised land. It was the medical equivalent of those segregated train coaches in which we were forced to ride. The poverty ward where the blacks were treated was like a prison barracks. Even the food the black patients were given was extremely substandard. They got what was known as the coals, nearly rotten vegetables and fruit that would otherwise have been cold to be thrown out. Sometimes when I was in the kitchen getting the trays to serve, I would try to switch the foods so the blacks would have an equal opportunity at the string beans and squash and berries. I didn't once get caught and I felt good, like a Robin Hood trying to make things just a tiny bit fairer. I went back to high school with a vengeance, determined to learn all about American history, not necessarily to please the secret father I might never see again, but to understand him. Knowing that I had a white father somehow emboldened me to do things I would have never done before. One example of this got me into big trouble. I had a math class with one of our strictest teachers, Mrs. Wynn. I always got A's. There was one pretty blonde girl named Gloria, 
a cheerleader whom all the boys liked, who just couldn't do math at all. She had the hardest time. She may have been the queen bee after class at the soda shop I couldn't go to, but here in the classroom, she was an utter failure. I decided I wanted to help her. So during a big exam, I sat next to her and turned my paper so she could copy my answers. She did. And even though she had never spoken to me before, after that exam, she gave me the warmest smile. It made me feel so good. On a less than noble level, helping this popular beauty gave me a sense of power, a sense of belonging to the elite sisterhood of the school. I felt sure Gloria would invite me into her inner circle, and given who my father was, I felt entitled to belong. These feelings didn't last long. In grading the test, Mrs. Wynn, with her eagle eye, noticed not only that Gloria had improved dramatically as a mathematician, but also had given the same few wrong answers that I had. A furious Mrs. Wynn called me in and threatened to send me to the principal, who might have expelled me. I didn't tell her my true motivation. I gave her some line about trying to help poor Gloria in an effort to remember the neediest. Mrs. Wynne lectured me about ha everybody having to stand on her own feet, that if I could stand so nicely on mine, so could Gloria. The implication was that if a poor black girl could do well in math, it should be a piece of cake for the school's white princess. The idea that Gloria needed Negro assistance was beneath her and the school's dignity. I hung my head and apologized. Mrs. Wynne gave us both Fs. Though she never brought us in for a scolding together, and Gloria never did speak to me one way or the other. Afterward, I stuck to my black friends and to my classes. I finally took my much-anticipated American history class. I was disappointed by how little I was taught about the South in general, and South Carolina in particular. This was Pennsylvania, and the course was very biased with lots and lots about Benjamin Franklin and the Revolutionary War and the Constitution, and not enough for me about the Civil War. Yes, the class spent several days on the Battle of Gettysburg, but the big hero here, after Abraham Lincoln, was a Pennsylvania congressman named Thaddeus Stevens, a New England-born lawyer who lived in Gettysburg. Stevens was one of the leading opponents of slavery. He was so annoyed with the Democrats for protecting the institution that he broke with his party and founded the Republican Party, whose hallmark was its commitment to emancipation. His chief ally in Washington was Charles Sumner, whom Edgefield's Preston Brooks tried to kill by caning on the floor of the Senate. After the Civil War, Stevens and Sumner were the leaders of the faction known as the Radical Republicans who led the impeachment proceedings against Lincoln's successor, President Andrew Johnson, on the ground that he was being too soft on his native South. What they couldn't do was punish Johnson. Stevens and Sumner did to the South as a whole. What they couldn't do to punish Johnson, Stevens and Sumner did to the South as a whole forbidding the old planter aristocrats, like the ones in the mansions on Buncombe Street, from holding office, and confiscating most of the diminished wealth they had left after the war. Stevens even tried to redistribute all the wealth to the former slaves, now called freedmen, 
but that was too radical, even for the radicals in Congress. He called the Confederate states conquered provinces and barely wanted them back in the Union. When he died, he was buried in the Black Cemetery in Lancaster. He put his body where his mouth was to illustrate in death his credo of equality of man before his creator. Stephen seemed to me like a wonderful hero, well worth studying about. So was Charles Sumner, a Harvard lawyer who stood up for blacks before anybody else of his elite class did. In one book I read there was a lithograph by Currier and Ives in 1872 of the seven black members of Congress. To me it was unforgettable. These seven distinguished gentlemen, all in waistcoats and bow ties and mutton chops, looking every inch the leaders of the country that they were, for a brief, shining moment. Three of the men were from South Carolina. One shared my birthplace of Aiken. All had been slaves. Now they were congressmen. It was a testament to hope and equality. And then it all vanished. When barely a decade after the Civil War, the Old South rose again and drove the Yankee occupiers out. Without the federal troops to restrain them, the Old Southerners terrorized blacks from exercising their newly won right to vote. And without the black vote, these distinguished black congressmen were unable to find re-election. Out of office, most of them went on to very sorry ends as victims of financial frauds and chicaneries. Few ended up better than sharecroppers, like my poor family, virtual slaves. How did it happen? I had to know, and my high school didn't tell me. I got the impression from my class that the South deserved every bad thing it got, and then some. But when I finally talked to my family, some of whom the great aunts and uncles actually remembered the hardships of Reconstruction, I got a contrary impression that the radical Republicans had gone too far, creating a white backlash that, as far as the South was concerned, was still lashing back today. Even though they were black and the Yankees' conquerors were supposedly on their side, all they talked about was how corrupt the Yankees were. I learned about carpetbaggers, Yankee outsiders who moved south after the Civil War to suck the blood of the ruins, and scallywags who were southern-born, greedy turncoats who tried to cash in on Yankee spoils. In my spare time, I spent countless hours at the Coatesville Public Library poring over American and Southern history books. There was quite a big collection, but there was so much dust that it looked as if I were the first person to open these books for decades. I guess because the North had won the Civil War, they were able to walk away from it in a way that the Southerners couldn't. The people of Dixie were apparently obsessed with the war and all the might-have-beens that could have secured their victory. Strangely enough, I never saw a black person in the Coatesville Library, and it wasn't because we were excluded from it like the YMCA. I wanted to tell my friends to come on down as what I was finding out was very, very interesting. But again, I kept that mouth shut. They might have questioned why I was so interested, and that was a line of inquiry to be avoided at all costs. Still, I developed a new insight into the aphor aphorism, knowledge is power. 
All those books I read did indeed make me feel far more secure in a world where everything else was so uncertain. One thing that especially struck me in my readings about the South was the fate of those other outsiders, the Jews, who had initially prospered mightily in the South, and the terrible scorn that was heaped upon them after the Civil War. A lot of the Yankee peddlers who came south to sell their wares happened to be Jewish and were hated for the extortionate prices they charged to a captive audience. On the other hand, end of the spectrum was the old guard southern Jews, like the Moses family. One beloved Moses had been governor of South Carolina before the Civil War. His son Franklin Moses used his father's fine image to become the scallywag governor right afterward. The same man who was a brilliant orator for se secession and who physically helped tear down the Union flag from Fort Sumter after its capture, young Moses now sang a totally different tune, the Yankee aria written by Stevens and Sumner. Moses was a very bad seed who took bribes from anyone and basically turned the governor's mansion in Columbia into the house of the rising sun, a bordello where anything went. It was known in South Carolina as the Chateau de Plunderville, with his imported French champagnes, Russian caviar, and the fine silks in which he draped his girlfriends, Moses was one of the only men in South Carolina who maintained the old plantation lifestyle, living even higher after the Civil War than he had before. Moses also openly maintained, at taxpayers' expense, half a dozen black mistresses. This did not endear him to white Southerners. Eventually, Moses proved too much, even for his Yankee patrons. Hounded out of office and out of South Carolina, he became a con man in Boston, using his Southern pedigree to swindle New England aristocrats. He did a six-month term in the Boston House of Corrections and afterward committed suicide in a bleak rooming house. Because of egregious examples like Moses and the high profile of Jewish merchants, Jewish people came to be perceived by white Southerners as both Christ-killers and South-killers. It seems that these Southerners had become increasingly fundamentalist in their religion of after the war, looking to God to heal their wounds, and Jews became one of the main scapegoats for the trials of the South. My relatives also seemed to buy this party line and regarded the Jews, who themselves had been slaves in Egypt, and were also different from the Anglo-Saxon majority, not as their natural allies, but as enemies of the South. Despite the years of subjugation, Southern blacks still maintained the loyalty of birth. Prejudice is unfair wherever it comes from. The net result of radical reconstruction was one step forward, 10 steps back and ultimately the exodus to the north that saw much of my Edgefield kin relocate in Pennsylvania. In the 1870s, once the white backlash kicked in, the key concepts that arose in the white southern view of the new class of freedmen, as the former slaves were known, were what I called the three I's, impudence, insolence, and inferiority. Any black who asserted his new post-Civil War rights the rights that hundreds of thousands of Americans, including President Lincoln, had died for, was considered pushy, 
rude, and way, way out of line. Blacks were expected by Southern whites to know their place, and that place was basically back in abject, bowing, and scraping servitude. If Southern whites didn't want blacks on the streetcars with them, imagine how they felt seeing them elected as representatives in their state houses and in Washington. The cornerstone to white arrogance and prejudice was a deep-seated, weirdly scientific conviction that black people were genetically of a lower order than whites. And despite that distinguished-looking first group of black representatives, there weren't many examples of accomplished blacks in the 1870s to rebut that presumption. After all, when you've been held in bondage for 200 years, it's a little difficult to generate those artistic and scientific accomplishments that would make white people respect you. The chief instrumentality of white Southern rebellion against radical reconstruction was the Ku Klux Klan. The white Southerners may have blamed the Yankees for their troubles, but they took this hatred out on Southern blacks. It was a lot easier to scare and bully penniless and defenseless ex-slaves than it was to intimidate the armed and uniformed occupying federal troops that had already conquered the South and burned and pillaged much of it. I can understand Southern resentment of their victors, but I couldn't understand why they were so cruel in taking out their anger on the poor freedmen. That seemed to me the most cowardly part of all. However, the South was always known as the Rebels, and this new rebellion against the Yankee occupation proved to be enormously effective and enormously damaging to the cause of civil rights, which was set back nearly a century in the process. The Klan, which began as a polite secret society for high-born Confederate junior officers, devolved after the war into a bloodthirsty cult populated by Southerners we now know as Rednecks. A reference to how their necks would get burned from their back-breaking toil in the cotton and tobacco fields. Proper Southerners never went into the fields and remained lily-white. Their slaves did their work for them. The Klansmen's white robes and pointed hoods made them look like ghosts. This image may have been their most potent weapon. As the freed blacks tended to be both very religious, only God could have seen them through the tribulations of slavery, and very superstitious. With their towering bonfires, their blood-curdling rebel yells, and their surprise thunder of the horse's hooves in the middle of the night, the clan seemed to blacks like the emissaries of Satan himself. The legend, my relatives told me, still fearful, was that these were the ghosts of Confederate soldiers, risen from the dead and straight out of hell. Their message to the freedmen, don't vote, don't aid the Yankees, and above all, never touch or never look at a white woman. The fear of black rape seems to have been the preeminent goad to organizing the rise of the Klan and its leadership of this new Southern insurrection. They sure thought our men had something special. One of my great aunts, Aunt Calliope, told me with a wink. I still don't know what it might be. I'm still waiting to see what it is. The men I've known, 
Then she broke out in a naughty laugh. She was almost 90 and had grown up as a slave and a freed woman. With the Civil War and Reconstruction and the Southern Redemption, as the whites called kicking the Yankees out and the blacks back into their place. She had seen it all and liked to talk about it. You're the only one who ever asked me, SMA, she said. Calliope had gotten her name from her slave masters, the Butler family, who had a great passion for classical antiquity. They liked having a house slave named after a Greek goddess, the muse of poetry. Fetch me my mint julep, Calliope. I could imagine them ordering her. Calliope was tiny and fragile, all dressed in black. In appearance, she reminded me of one of the witches of Macbeth. But she was sweet and loving and oh so wise. When she told stories, she waved her hands expressively and emphatically. She was so frail, I worried that she might pass out, or worse, from all the motion. But she seemed to derive energy from our conversations. Calliope lived in a tiny room in a rooming house in the spruces, which she kept immaculately, but lit with candles rather than electric lights. She said somehow she could never get used to modern power. She lived in the past, and I was thrilled to go on time travels with her. Getting back to the clan, Calliope told me how the democratic ruling, the old democratic ruling, aristocrats like her former owners, the butlers, got everyone worked up with the fear of black sexual assaults. Once we had the vote, once we had the education, the next thing they thought we was going to take their woman, she said. That was the worst thing that could ever happen to them. They were afraid once the white woman got with the black men, they wouldn't have no use for the white men no more. If a black man so much as tipped his cap to a white lady, he'd get strung up. Just like that, ain't nobody gonna stop them. Lynching was the embodiment of Southern justice. I used to think lynching meant hanging, but I found out it originally meant any kind of frontier justice met, meted out by the, a mob. The term derived from the Lynch brothers who lived in Virginia during the Revolutionary War and founded the town of Lynchburg. There were no courts during that insurgent time, so the lynches called themselves judges and sent their minions out to punish by torture, hanging, burning, whatever was handy. All enemies of the new state, from British sympathizers to horse thieves. By Reconstruction, lynching, which could mean either hanging or burning, became the punishment for black men who were a perceived threat to the sexual color line. I found it ironic that the biggest song of the last year had been a jazzy number by the Andrews sisters called Beat Me Daddy, Eight to the Bar. When I thought about my brutalized ancestors in the South, I couldn't conceive of whipping as an appropriate subject for public amusement. They might have lynched me, I thought, me and my mother. No, they never mess with the woman, only the men. They didn't lynch women. We got our own punishment. So Aunt Calliope explained the bizarre double standard of interracial sexuality in the Old South, which continued in the new. Calliope knew about my father, my real white father. Everybody in my family did. Only I had been in the dark. Yes, it was an enormous secret, but 
Most of my mother's family was far away here in Pennsylvania to be out of gossip range, and the ones in Edgeville looked like they'd seen enough clan intimidation and know-your-place conditioning to never open their mouths about anything. The fine white women of the South were all supposed to be pure virgins until marriage, and after that, eternally faithful to their white husbands. Any sexual relationship between a white woman and a black man was immediately presumed to be rape of the most brutal kind. But white men, on the other hand, were entitled by nearly divine right to have the run of the hen house or slave quarters. The masses all looked after their children, no matter who birthed them. That was part of what it meant to be a gentleman, Calliope said. Calliope told me one story about the richest cotton planter in Edgeville, James Henry Hammond, who had an open sexual relationship with two of his slaves who happened to be mother and daughter. That's what they did back then. The wives all knew, but that was the way it was. Massa was king, Calliope said. Hammond, reveling in his sexual freedom, also had children with both mother and daughter. And if father was king, his son was a prince, for he too had sexual relations with his father's slave lovers. It was incredible risque. If not for those times, certainly for mine. I was growing up in the time of the Hayes Code in Hollywood. You couldn't see stories like this in the movies. The Little Foxes with Betty Davis, which centers on a corrupt Southern family, was the wildest thing I saw in 1941. But there was no sex, and nothing like the tales my aunt was telling me. Waving those hands now with agitation, Calliope described how John Henry Hammond agonized over what to do with his illegitimate children. He decided that it would be cruelty to free them and send them north, even with money. He believed they would live far better as his protected slaves in the south than as footloose free people in the north. He did, however, arrange in his will that his slave children were not allowed to be sold outside the Hammond family. While he was having his affairs with his slaves, Calliope continued, Hammond was also stepping out with the swells. He was accused of having seduced four of his own nieces by his sister and her husband, Wade Hampton II, who was supposedly the richest man in the entire South before the Civil War. Again, it was a kingly thing to do, and despite the rumors of incest, Hammond was still elected to the U.S. Senate. After the Civil War, despite the kings having been deposed, the kingly style continued. Calliope recounted the tale of the noble Francis Pickens family, the one who was ambassador to Russia and whose daughter was South Carolina's Joan of Arc, a poster child of racism. At the same time, Joan was conducting her crusade against blacks and Yankees. The widow of the ambassador had a brother and a best friend who came to live with her on the old plantation, not far from Old Buncombe. Each young man took a former slave as a common-law wife, had children with her. These mixed-race offspring all grew up in the great house, accepted as part of one happy family. Pickens and Pickaninnies. Calliope joked. I didn't tell him I... Hmm. Well, I guess we'll wrap there. Always nice to get in a racist joke. I don't know if you call that a racist joke or 
what exactly, but pickings and pickaninnies. Context of white supremacy. So we'll pause there. We'll pick up. We are in mid chapter three. The number is seven two zero seven one six seven three hundred. The code five six four nine four three pound. Press star six one if you would like to participate. Right to the phone line until justice at gmail dot com. The email. Uh, our caller in Ohio missed you first time around. Go right to you. Uh, number one, uh, can you hear me okay? Is my audio sounding crazy or what have you? And then whatever commentary you have on Dear Senator. Hello? Yes, sir. We can hear you. Getting his audio situated. Uh, yes, doing sir. your notes. I, it was uh, reverbing really badly. So if you would get to listen to the audio playback, I don't know, it could have been my phone, but it was reverbing really badly right as you started giving your critique and your opinion of Mr. Uh, Thurman. And uh, I don't know if that's uh, somebody doing file play with your stuff, but I just wanted to let you know that. That was it. Oh, okay. Brand, it, you can I be heard now, or is it still acting crazy? Yeah, right now you're very clear. When you were giving your, uh, when you're going through your notes, that's when if you listen to the audio, it's more than likely going to be messed up. But it could be on my end. I was just trying to let you know so that you could uh, fix it, because I know you're about to give a very uh, good dissertation on it. Oh, okay. you know good. Much obliged. Much obliged. I'll listen to the audio when we go back. I said it was crazy like because uh, I couldn't hear myself and it was all over the place with uh, the audio but hopefully the uh, archive will be straight uh, for folks listening in and then working now but yeah it was wacky all the way around much obliged for the heads up glad it's straight now um, other folks uh, comments that they wanted to make sure that they get in on the text uh, retired firefighter should be with us uh, victim in New Jersey as well yeah uh, more more of uh, area 8 which is basically to white males especially powerful white males uh is uh, like uh, a breathing uh, object uh, for uh, sexual gratification, mistreatment, even from the standpoint of children uh, being a result of that relationship. I can see where uh, it's actually is a, uh, and I believe the uh, the uh, the book stated it a assumption of pride that look at look at that child look at that 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 picking in there that looks like me type of thing uh as far as how the relationship would be uh and uh um yeah that's that's basically what i'm what i'm hearing uh white people are very uh, good with words, 
the term worker sounds a, a little bit more nicer than slave. But actually, the description of the treatment that's being rendered unto these victims is as a slave. Uh, that's basically what it is. Um, also, uh, part of from the uh, a report from the first part, uh, I've always had a problem with the term, with the metaphor falling in love. It's something that is wrong with that term. I know some people uh, like it uh, for. Uh, I'm suspicious. Uh, uh, I'm I suspicious of reasoning reasoning on why uh they like it because it's been uh put into movies for that purpose to have people to like it uh but uh there's something sinister about a term that states that you are falling in other words you, the person does not have control of their emotions i'm not saying emotions are not important but it should not lead a person's thinking. Uh, Mr. Fuller even suggests that when it comes to uh, males and females, uh, before one, the, the two become, become committed to each other uh, emotionally, they should ask a lot of questions to one another. So you would know everything about that person. So you won't quote unquote fall for anything. <laughs> but uh yeah, those those are just uh some of my thoughts. I can I can say a lot more, but probably wouldn't have the time. Thank you. Much obliged, retired firefighter in Florida. Uh say victim in New Jersey. Anybody else, any other thoughts, ideas they wanted to share, questions? Yes. Uh, yes. A victim in New Jersey. Um, so as I was listening, and again, um, proof that, you know, uh, I mean, even, even with, you know, um, good, good, good quality information that the author is giving about, you know, the, um, you know, Jim Crow South. Um, however, still confused um i think in and in i'm not accurate but paraphrasing when she, the author basically says how you know white people uh how they thought black people were inferior and it was proof of their inferiority because of their current situation and she attributed that gave credit to slavery for that but didn't give credit to the current terrorism that black people was under, you know, especially when she spoke about the black politicians who were, uh, you know, basically overthrown um, out of office. And, you know, the rest of their life, they, they lived as low as a sharecropper. So you go from, and this is, this is not slavery. This is after slavery. Uh, I remember when we did the uh, Sundown Towns, 
and that word that was was always uh you know word that the author used the nadir uh that period of time so you know right then and there you can even be living in the terrorism or you can live close to the terrorism but but still can't contextualize what you're actually seeing uh even when the author is comparing the plight of black people to the Jews and the reference was the Bible, you know, being slaves in Egypt. Um, I'm not a religious man. Um, me personally, I don't really know too many people that can present me with enough evidence to say that was true. But the argument is this, even if they were slaves thousands of years ago, you know, um, they're still functioning in the South as white people. They're still opening businesses, even though the uh, though the Southern whites are not too uh, you know not 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 too happy about it, and may have some disagreements with it. But they still have protection under the law. They still are socialized as white people. So, um, again, you know, uh, even with the even with the wealth of knowledge that is being presented from the author, there's still that level of confusion that that I that I'm I'm hearing. I, I could be incorrect. Confusion is lethal, and there seems to be quite a bit of that in this here text, unfortunately, but uh, hey, we can learn uh, even in that way. Uh, let's see, much obliged victim in New Jersey. Uh, I can finish notes from our investor, so he took notes on Chapter 3 as well. Uh, he writes in Chapter 3, number 1, Chester, Pennsylvania, I previously primarily associated Chester PA with Jameer Nelson who was born there and thrilled us when he played at St. Joseph's College Philadelphia PA and subsequently in the NBA was an all-star with the Orlando Magic if my memory is correct this book has given me a whole new perspective on these localities and how number two in my darkest hours I began to look at all black people as victims and white people as oppressors and everything in America as grossly unfair. <laughs> in my brightest hour, someone very special, I had a brilliant white father and a beautiful black mother and I and a beautiful black mother was I not the golden child? The words darkest hours, unfair and brightest hours stand out. Clarity racism white supremacy and confusion may be more accurate substitutes for sure number three working at Coatesville Hospital the so-called enlightened north our promised land black patients rotten vegetables she would switch the food the black Robin Hood she said this speaks to the precision and detail required to maintain white supremacy or what retired firefighter referred to last week as the science of white supremacy number four pretty blonde girl Gloria turned to my paper so she could or she turned 
her own paper so she could copy my answers. Seeking white validation also discussed in the beauty con game by Emoja, AKA Pamela Evans Harris, the late heard her voice before we got live today. Number five, Pennsylvania Congressman named Thaddeus Stevens. He is rumored to have been in a tragic arrangement with his maid, Lydia Hamilton Smith, who is described as one fourth black and phenotypically appears white to me in photographs. Their relationship has been characterized in the original birth of a nation. Oh no. And Steven Spielberg's movie Lincoln. Yikes. Number six, Franklin Moses, scallywag governor. Wikipedia suggests that his bad reputation may not have been due so much to the illegality, but Southern Confederate antipathy due to his affinity for supporting better treatment of black people through social programs and, for example, creating a black militia to protect the former slaves. White Reconstruction governors, including Moses, were demonized as vampires by Ben Tillman. Oh no. Taken from Ben Tillman and the reconstruction of white supremacy, which we read in the book club. Number seven, James Henry Hammond had an open sexual relationship with two of his slaves who happened to be mother and daughter. Jesus. Oh, I said last week, Thomas Jefferson, Sally Hemings. I said, Sally Hemings was his half sister. She Sally Hemings is Thomas Jefferson's white wife's half sister. Strive for accuracy. Still icky. Uh, da, 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 da. James Henry Hammond had opened Francis Pickens family. Each young man took a former slave as a common law wife. Hammond is also discussed in the Cows Book Club selection. The half has never been told, which I just looked at today. I was trying to get Robert Potter's uh, the thesis where he was going around castrating uh, people. Such a important book. Number eight. Uh, oh, 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 wait a minute. Oh, we did okay. Uh, the judge. He's very patriotic. They need to fight. It's in their blood. War runs in the family. Uh oh. What does it mean to be white indeed? Number nine. Uh Calliope, is that it? Whatever it is. Uh they called it civil rights, but there wasn't nothing civil about it. Neely Fuller Jr. also makes a similar cr- uh cling. Uh let's see. Uh okay, now we didn't get that far. I can stop. We'll get the rest of chapter three next week. Uh, let's see notes that I took much obliged to our listener for investor for writing in chapter three reconstruction. Um, that statement investor just read it down when she saw black people as victims or white people as oppressors. Hey, sometimes it is, as they say, it's that black and white. Yep. It is that simple. No confusion, no ambiguity. That's what you got. Uh, let's see. And all of the metaphors, darkest hours, my brightest hours, fair, all of that. The metaphors of white supremacy, racism, all of those, I think, are in the word God. Uh, she says she's always she felt like she was always skating on very thin ice about her relationship to her parents and everything. I mean, that is pff, trauma right there. And I mean, on thin ice. So you're at risk of drowning death. Right. That's what happens on on thin ice. You could die. Uh, she said this whole explanation that she gives about working at the poverty ward at Coatesville Hospital in the promised land of the north where the black patients are treated horribly. This again is, a, is another great passage. So why might black people be hesitant about going to the hospital or believing what white people have to say about COVID-19 or anything? This has nothing to do with Nurse Rivers. This is not Alabama. And you get the same trifling racist behavior Hippocratic oath what Hippocratic oath nigga get over there and eat this rotten food 
Let's see. Excellent point, investor, talking about this white girl, Gloria. I'm going to see if I can curry some favor. She doesn't even come up. Oh, let me. Thanks for hooking me up. Just come to my house or come have lunch with us. Nah. Nah. She's not ignorant about racism, old Gloria, way back then. Uh, let's see. And from the teacher, too, I love her breakdown. She says, Miss, Mrs. Wynn comes to Fusseter and says the implication was that if a poor black girl could do well in math, it should be a piece of cake for the school's white princess. The idea that Gloria needed Negro assistance was beneath her and the school's dignity. I hung my head and apologized. Miss Wynn gave us both F's, though she never brought us in for a scolding together. Now, that's interesting because I wonder what she told Gloria. You're a white woman. Have some self-respect. You don't copy from some nigger girl's paper. And I'm even wondering, did she give Gloria an F2? Like, did you see her report card that she also got an F? Or did you see the, the test to confirm? Yes, we both got Fs for this. Just saying. Uh, Thaddeus Stevens, uh, okay, he did whatever he did. He didn't solve this problem. That's it. You'll find lots of rumors, evidence of white people who were helpful to black people for five minutes or two minutes or five years. Problem not solved. No celebrating until that happens. Uh, let's see when she's talking about the former black Congress members who were booted out after reconstruction is Ben Tillman being a part of that. We talked about that before. Uh, most of them went on a very sorry ends as victims of financial frauds or chicaneries. That's kind of soft language, uh, deception. <laughs> um, few ended economic terrorism. Few ended up better than sharecroppers. Like my family, she says virtual slaves. That's what I said before. Hey, if I'm a slave, don't soften it. Don't soften it. That's the worst thing you can do. Have me up here confused. And now I'm a, a migrant worker, a forced migrant worker, or virtual. Just call me a slave. It's fine. If that's what I am, that'll be that'll be an annoyance to help get the light of fire under me, as they say, to help get this problem solved. Uh, let's see. I thought it was interesting. She said her family said that she got the, they got they gave her the impression that the radical Republicans, white people, had gone too far, creating a white backlash. They were going to do that anyway. Didn't matter. <laughs> we're upset. We don't have our niggers in the way that we want to. That was going to happen anyway. Um, oh my gosh! After my finds at the library today, she says I never saw a black in the Coatesville library. Now, again, this is back in Pennsylvania, not in South Carolina. And it wasn't because we were excluded from it. Like the YMCA, I wanted to tell my friends to come on down as what I was finding out was very interesting. But again, I kept that mouth shut. Now, wow. Even I go back to last week where she talks about the school where the black people got booted over into the no count school at about eighth grade or so. And then they went back with the segregated whites where the white teachers didn't care about them or what have you. I submit that sort of experience has an enormous impact on black children and being curious and wanting to read and excited about learning. And I want to do some independent study on my own and all eh, these white ch uh, teachers don't care about me and all that. And if I see what's the payoff, I do all this and I'm still going to end up like these countless black males with no job, just sitting out all day long. That might kill a lot of my motivation to want to learn a whole lot, too. Uh, let's see. She says, and then we get this long list 
of countless uh, white people with their long record of sexually uh, molesting black people widespread and again white people are not ignorant about uh, any of this uh, she says Moses also openly maintained that taxpayers expense half a dozen black mistresses none of this is ignorant and I'm sure they were probably not women I'm sure these weren't 35 year olds and 40 year olds like <laughs> Carrie Butler 15, 14, Sally Hemings uh, blacks were expected by southern whites to know their place and that place was basically back in abject bowing and scraping servitude that is the case still today I thought it was important too she says to rebut the presumption that black people were ignorant and couldn't be accomplished and all that after all when you've been held in bondage for 200 years it's a little difficult to generate those artistic and scientific accomplishments that would make white people respect you this is in my view another fundamental understanding of what racism white supremacy is what it means to be white because this is not about oh if we can go and get degrees and dress nicely and get a tuxedo and a nice evening gown they won't practice racism wrong President Obama Representative Clyburn you're a Negro with a degree or a tuxedo or whatever and that's just what it is let's see all this about the written the hypocrisy again that's why we're reading this book uh, to begin with all of that hypocrisy that you do all this Ben Tillman Strom Thurmond all these whites do all that Dylan Storm Roof take it all the way current you do all this yelping the Negros they're raping and raping and raping and raping and then you got all of this hypocrisy and she used that word in the book that is exactly why I said nah man Dr. J uh, Russell Hawkins any other white person point that out every time not as a romance and point out the hypocrisy and even as retired firefighter said just earlier on this very broadcast we're not going to be sitting up talking about so called uh, separation if you are raping a black child we're not separate that's not segregation use accurate terms be accurate to what you like you like having non-white people in a position where they can be exploited you can have a little 14 year old 13 year old uh, as a maid servant victim of white supremacy slave basically call it what it is as a slave I can be raped nothing can be done about it family can't say anything about it relatives can't say anything about it just have to accept it and then can't even acknowledge if a pregnancy results from all this oh well yeah and then sit around and we're the rapists we're the ones you just watch the negras watch the negras they're gonna rape our little girls what they're gonna rape old gloria watch the negras get out of here uh let's see calliope that was it calliope i don't know why i got calliope calliope um total Wellsing moment they sure thought our men had something special one of my great aunts Aunt Calliope told me with a wink I still don't know what it might be I'm still waiting to see what it is uh, white genetic annihilation the threat of Negro domination hangs over us like the sword of Damocles Ben Tillman uh, let's see mm -mm 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 -mm. 
Let's see. The history of lynching. She says, white men, on the other hand, were entitled by nearly divine right to have the run of the hen house or slave quarters. One, I think that is dehumanizing hen house because, I mean, that's where the chickens are, right? That's not what we're calling black females, victims of racism, white supremacy. And I mean, hey, the hen house, they had access to the black males and the black females. Keep that in mind too. Uh, rethinking Rufus. Thomas A. Foster, guest on the program, not that far back. Important to think about that both ways. We don't want to be what do they call it. Uh, heteronormative. There we go. We don't want to be heteronormative uh, in our analysis of history and white rapists, white male and female rapists one uh, hen house and then two uh, white women would have uh, run of the hen house slave quarters if you want to say it that way too but also divine right religion of white supremacy this is God ordained what I'm doing and again last week Carrie Butler when talking to her daughter said hey your skin your complexion the boys are going to love you now I don't know if she meant the white boys the non-white boys everybody but that skin complexion that is as though, hey, I was raped as a child, but it's not so bad. The offspring, look, she's got that pretty complexion like her fair, handsome dad. That is the pathology of white supremacy, racism, the trauma when you get victimized, sexually victimized and every other aspect of white supremacy, racism can totally drive us insane does drive us insane that's why dr welsing says we don't qualify for mental health uh anything uh, oh she says uh Aunt, uh calliope she says that the men they masters that's what it is the masters all looked after their children no matter who birthed them that was part of what it meant to be a gentleman ain't no such thing in a system of white supremacy racism and i mean please strom thurman offering a huge little bit of money here and there i did the inflation uh calculator uh, so she said that he gave her like two thousand or excuse me, uh, two hundred dollars in 1941. So for today, 2022, that would be three thousand six hundred eighty dollars with the astronomical inflation going up by the second. That is not taking care of your child. They said she came to Coastville, Pennsylvania with nothing. Taking care of your child is monthly support, right? Not, oh, I can look out for you every now and then hook you up again. No, 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 no. It would be every day I'm looking out for you. And what uh, Janetta Rose Barra said, the intimacy, I'm checking in, all that, being a dad. White men do not do that at all. In fact, it's a longer record of them not acknowledging at all. But I, uh, Calliope, she has VGQ as well. Victims guaranteed qualified. Uh, and if father was king, his son was a prince, for he too had sexual relations, rape, not using accurate terms with his father's slave lovers what in how can anybody here I don't know how you get down bedroom activity can you imagine you and one of your parents you are engaging in sexual activity with the same person persons even what <laughs> That is white culture. That right there, and to be proud to brag about that sort of behavior. That's a part of the religion of white supremacy right there. Let's see. Mm -mm 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 -mm. 
And then, like I said, to brag about it, they said with, uh, make sure I get the whole thing in. Uh, she says with Henry Hammond, he was accused of having seduced four of his own nieces by his sister and her husband, Wade Hampton, the second, who was supposedly the richest man in the entire South before the Civil War because of Negros. Again, it was a kingly thing to do. And despite the rumors of incest, Hammond was still elected to the U.S. Senate. That right there. Again, this is white culture. Woody Allen, whomever. <sighs> hey, whatever. Frank Sinatra getting married to a 16-year-old. We talked about that in Woody Allen's book, Mia Farrow, when he was 47, almost 50. That's white culture. People don't even bring that up when they talk about Frank Sinatra. New York, New York. Old blue eyes, right? Not child raping Frank Sinatra. That's not what they say. Not child raping Woody Allen. That's not what they say. Child raping Thomas Jefferson. That's all my notes for the week. Uh, did the full three hours have to slow down with this book a little bit because lots of notes so much to say so many reports have to I didn't even get all my library finds in today Uh, we will be back next Thursday as we continue picking up in chapter three much obliged to our narrator uh, black female listener in South Florida down near retired firefighter Uh, much obliged to the folks who wrote in called in hope it's been worth your time and energy Uh, hopefully the archives the audio will be straight won't have those issues tech issues notwithstanding hopefully it was constructive uh, we'll be here tomorrow for neutralizing workplace racism 8 p.m eastern 5 p.m pacific uh, we'll catch up on what's gone down the last seven days this weekend compensatory call in uh, with that we will wrap uh, sobriety would be best uh, we need high functioning brain computers to solve this problem uh, if you're out and about no time for brawls with strangers uh, you should be thinking they could be armed they could have a little ben tillman in them be ready for a fight, ready to kill a Negro. If you didn't leave your residence, prepared to kill and or die, exit. This is no time for random conflict with strangers. If you're in a vehicle, you're sober, buckled, not on the cell phone. We need all of our attention to be mindful about what's happening around us. And we're trying to minimize contact with race soldiers as best we can, badge or no. That said, creator, we ask that you help us remain patient with other black people, victims of white supremacy. We ask that you help us remain patient with ourselves. Remind us to demonstrate the highest levels of black self-respect at all times, in all places, each and every time we are in contact with another black person. It has been time replace white supremacy with justice immediately cow signing out thanks all for tuning in nigga you so brainwashed i'm a victim Your brother problem. You're a victim yeah. i'm up. a victim of 400 years of conditioning shut up the man has programmed my conditioning mm-hmm. even my conditioning has been conditioned yeah.